Well, for the first time in U.S. history, a speaker has been voted out through a process called vacating the chair. Now, there's been a lot of back and forth on this, on what this means and different arguments for and against. What we're going to do today is we're going to give you as dispassionate and analysis as possible. We're going to go through this process. We're going to go through what it actually means for everything that's going to go forward now. We're going to talk about the people that were in favor of this, the people that were against this. There's a lot of harsh rhetoric going around right now. We're going to look at some clips where each side gets to explain exactly why they did what they did. And then if you stick around for the end, we're going to go around the table and we'll actually give you our take on whether or not we thought this is a good idea or a bad idea. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument Powered by Good Ranchers. Not only am I looking forward to getting everyone's opinion towards the end of the show, I'm also looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this in our community chat. If you aren't a member already, go down to the link in the description of the show notes on audio or the description on YouTube. You can click that link right there and join. Introduce yourself in the Introduce Yourself channel. We'd love to get to know you there. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates for now. But other than that, a reasonably good guy. We have with us today my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. Our political prognosticator, resident historian, and mostly benevolent warlord in training, Christian. We, we got to come up with a more concise Nope, it's that. Intro. Anyways, we also have <laughs> our producer of producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Let's do it. All right. So... Uh, unless you've been asleep or haven't watched, walked past a screen anywhere in the last couple of days, you probably know that uh, Kevin McCarthy is no longer Speaker of the House. The Speaker of the House is an incredibly powerful position. I, in fact, I think sometimes people don't realize just how powerful. It's not only 30 in line for the presidency, but when it comes to actually controlling the House of Representatives and the process by which budgets are passed, by which bills are passed, um, committee assignments, it is just... In an incredibly powerful position. And again, you, you might remember that they actually had to go through 15 votes to get Kevin McCarthy a speaker, which was highly unusual. And the reason why they had to do that is because the Republican majority in the House was so slim that he pretty much needed just about every Republican to get on board and vote. And the only way that they would do that, and this was uh, led by people like uh, Chip Roy, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, um, Bob Good, several others. The only way they would get on board was if Kevin McCarthy agreed to certain rules, which a lot of conservatives actually thought was a very good idea. And one of the big things was this concept of regular order. Because, again, if the speaker wants to play games with bills, they have a lot of power. They can sneak them away to committees where they'll never be seen, never be heard. And they wanted to make sure that the, the regular standard process for legislation to get assigned to the appropriate committee, get assigned to the appropriate subcommittee, allow people within the committee to offer amendments, to do that whole entire process. They wanted that to be in place. One of the other things that they were adamant about was that any person, any member of the House of uh, Representatives could call for a vote to vacate the chair. Now, originally, I believe it required what? Was it a majority of uh, the individuals to re to uh, request a vacation of the chair? Um, I can't remember. I, I, I'll look up the exact rule. It was more than one. It we'll, was we'll definitely check on more that. than one. It was more than one, but that was one of the things that they argued for. And, and you know, again, it, it's probably not hard to see why the people that were arguing for these changes, you know, the only, the only power they had before the speaker was elected was before he was elected. That's when they had their power to negotiate. That's when they could say, we want these members on various committees. We want regular order. We want all of these things. Now, once he's speaker, he's speaker. That's it. 
that's it. He, he could go back on those deals pretty easily in some cases, maybe a little bit more difficult than others when you start to establish things like house rules. But that was, that was the problem. And the thing that was kind of the stopgap, the check on his power was the idea of one individual being able to call to vacate the chair. And obviously, you're not just worried about how your own caucus is going to vote in this particular case. You also have to worry about how the Democrats are going to vote. So let's talk about what happened. Um, Matt Gates was the representative, Matt Gates, representative from Florida. He was the representative that voted to vacate the chair. And what happened was is eight Republicans voted with Matt Gates. So you might be thinking if only eight Republicans voted for, or seven Republicans voted with Matt Gates, how, how could they get the speaker to step down? Because all 209 Democrats voted with them. Now, the, inter- the interesting thing that people are kind of analyzing right now is like, oh, well, what was promised to the Democrats or why would the Democrats do this? Can I just tell you as, as a member of a legislature, there's kind of a basic rule here. And the basic rule is if the other side is having problems or having infighting or having chaos, you sit back and let them do it and you help them if you can, right? So if the Democrats analyze this as, well, the Republicans are in chaos, let's help them remain in chaos, then they could see this as beneficial to themselves without being guaranteed anything or or whatnot. So it's not as if Matt Gates or, or any of the other members that voted against the Speaker would have to go over the Democrats and said, hey, if you vote with us, we'll give you X, Y, and Z, because ultimately they couldn't promise that anyways, or they couldn't promise anything other than maybe their own votes on particular issues, but that wouldn't have been much of a promise to do this. So the Democrats had a built-in incentive in order to do this if they correctly analyzed, and they could be incorrect, but if they correctly analyzed that this would do more damage to the Republicans than them, then they would have thought, okay, great, yeah, let's let's vote along with Matt Gates to vacate the chair. We'll cause some problems in the Republican caucus. You know, th- this is a win-win for us, right? The other, but okay, so, th- so that's how they got enough votes to, to vacate the chair, The process now is someone steps in to essentially temporarily fill that position. And now the Republican caucus, since they're in the majority and since theoretically they have all the votes necessary in order to pick the speaker, they're going to go back into caucus and they're going to select a new speaker. That's, that's the process they're going to go through. Now, again, Democrats are going to do the, they're going to do the same thing, but on their side, and they're going to obviously offer up a different speaker. The thing that is in question right now, is there any potential alliance between some Republicans and some Democrats to, you know, pick a different speaker? That, that's the big unknown right now. Uh, and the only way that could happen at this point is that if you had a significant number of Republicans going over to the Democrats to try to work a deal. Now, based off of who, you know, led the charge to vacate, I don't see Matt Gates or Matt Rosendale or Bob Good or Nancy Mace or any of these other people going over and trying to cut a deal to get a speaker the Democrats like. That wouldn't make any sense. Their frustration with Kevin McCarthy, as we're going to hear from some of them later, was the idea that he wasn't being conservative enough. So they don't really have any incentive to work with the Democrats to get a new speaker. That doesn't mean other Republicans might not try to do that. But we can, we can debate on whether or not we think that's likely. I think one of the surprising things in this development is the fact that McCarthy chose not to run again because he could have seen this as, okay, I could run again, offer a few more concessions, get them back on board, make them happy. But he chose not to run again, which, is, which I feel like was the biggest surprise in this because 
it seemed to me, especially because, I mean, we dealt with McCarthy when you were running for Congress and it was like he was the gatekeeper and he was not going to give you the time of day unless you could tell him he you would vote for him for, uh, you know, speaker. And so if you weren't going to do that, he was withholding that endorsement, which which makes sense. If you're not willing to endorse him, he doesn't endorse you. It, it, it makes sense. Well, but- I, the, the thing you need to remember is that we... Just to clarify something, we weren't looking for Kevin McCarthy's endorsement. No. Uh, the, 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 <clears throat> so the, the, the rumor that was going around, and it was a very, very well-established rumor, is that Trump's endorsement was tied to Kevin McCarthy giving the okay for it. Right. He was the gatekeeper. And, and this, is, this is one of those things that has been, I, I think, what might kind of surprise some Trump supporters is that there, there was, I don't know if there still is. I mean, in fact, when I listening to Laura Trump talk the other day on Tim Pool's show leads me to believe that maybe there's not such a close relationship as there used to be, but it, it used to be Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump were very, very close um, and, and worked, you know, very, very closely together. And McCarthy, as he was assisting various house races throughout the country, he was one of the people that would give the nod to the president in order to get an endorsement in the primary. Yeah. So you had to go through McCarthy in order to get a Trump endorsement in the primary. And that's what we were after. Um, and we did not get that because Nick could not guarantee him. Well, I didn't plan to votes. go. I didn't plan to go into all this. Well, right anyway, now, uh, well, the point I was going to make is that this man was extremely powerful. He was very driven to have this position as the speaker. And and so the idea that that's one of the reasons I'm saying that it shocked me that he didn't go back to the drawing board and go, okay, what do you want? I'll work with you. What do you want? Instead, he was like, I'm done with this crap. And he decided to be like, peace out. Yeah. You know, that was worth, the surprising part. It's worth noting that, um, so so I was telling Nick before we went live that this is actually similar to this this rule change. By the way, before um, to answer the question that we had at the very beginning of the show, um, before January, the rule previously was that the motion to vacate the chair could only be considered a privileged rule, which meant that like it was it was basically guaranteed that there would be a floor vote on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it basically enshrined as like a right of an individual member to make this motion. It would only be considered privilege if it had the backing of a majority of the majority caucus. So basically yeah. it was it was effectively impossible for for backbenchers within a party to hold their their party's leadership accountable. And part of the reason that this was the case was because Nancy Pelosi, quite frankly, ran roughshod over the squad mm-hmm. when they took over the House in 2018. This is something a lot of people on the left don't seem to to fully realize that like people like AOC and Ilhan Omar and stuff like that, they got elected and they just folded like a cheap deck chair um, as soon as Democrats took over the chamber in 2018. Like they, they didn't actually push back at all to anything Pelosi was doing procedurally. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about procedures here. None of them stood up to any of the consolidation of political power that Pelosi had under. I mean, she she consolidated even more power than had previously existed under Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Yeah. And people who are like super nerds in this might remember that for the for years, years, it was impossible for you to offer a floor amendment and, As and a it, member of Congress. So you would go in, leadership would basically tell you, you're going to vote yes on this bill. 
And that was all that you had. That, that, that was it. You had no recourse. You had no ability to alter a bill. You had no ability to, if you weren't on the committee that was drafting the bill, you had no ability to influence let, that process. Let me give everyone some in, insight here into, into how this, this works, because this part's important. All right. The vast majority of people don't, the vast majority of people in a legislature don't see a bill until it comes to the floor, which means it could die in a subcommittee with only, you know, again, seven people voting on it. I, I have sat in a subcommittee before where there was only two state senators and one of the state senators was voting proxy for like four other state senators. So literally there's only two people sitting at the table and then the Senator will walk in because in the Virginia state Senate, they get proxy votes. We don't do that in the house. And so you would, you would sit there and explain your bill and the chairman of the subcommittee would be, you know, okay, we're going to call the vote. And then they would say, okay, Senator Hashmi votes. No Senator, you know, whatever, like, Senator Hashmi votes, or they vote no, I have their proxy. They vote no, I have their proxy. They vote no, I have their proxy. So you might have explained your bill to two people and it's dead and that's it. It's gone. It's done. Typically where most of the amending of a bill takes place is in the committee process. And that makes sense. There's nothing nefarious about this. It just makes sense because you, you see too much legislation in a short period of time. So it goes to a subcommittee, then it typically goes to full committee, and then it goes to the floor. And if it gets to the floor, it's almost certain that it's going to pass. Not guaranteed, but almost certain. But there's still a final process for amending for all the other people that maybe like the bill. But there's, there's one problem that they have with it. They can submit what's called a floor amendment. And then you debate on the floor on whether or not you're going to accept that amendment before you vote on the bill. Well, again, and, and, and this is something too, where it was Republicans in the house that consolidated so much power. And again, you can argue, well, they were just trying to streamline the process or make it, they were centralizing power to such a degree to where things were just getting jammed through. And now when it comes to the floor, you might say, okay, I, I like this bill, but there's one major problem with it. I want to offer a floor amendment. No, you can't. Okay, I'm, I'm voting no then. If you vote no, we're going to tell all of your constituents that you voted against veterans or that you voted against it. This is a common refrain in all legislatures, not just the House, especially when it comes to budget items. And, and this kind of, so as we're explaining this process, we need people to understand how the process sometimes gets manipulated or the political factors that work into the, the policy decisions. And one of the biggest problems, and, and this is a huge problem in Congress, in Virginia, we have what's called germaneness rules. So that's kind of like a, a quasi one issue per bill. So I can't submit a bill that deals with, you know, you know, a specific agricultural, you know, thing, and then add a bunch of stuff on transportation. I can't do that. I'm not allowed to in Virginia. The federal government does it all the time. And so what they do is they create these massive bills where the title of the bill addresses one issue. But then when you read the fine print, there's a ton of crap in there that has nothing to it's do like with earmarks. it. Yeah. And if you don't allow for a floor amendment process, what you're essentially doing is setting some up for a political problem where the headline of the bill might sound great. The primary substance of the bill might be great, but then they add in all this additional crap to try to get people on board with it. 
And it just creates a very, very perverse process. And so one of the big things that they were pushing was trying to get more to regular order and to be able to address these issues. That was one of the major issues that Chip Roy fought for in order for McCarthy to become, become speaker. So the, the process now was one person could vacate the chair. That was Matt Gates. He got seven other Republicans to vote with him. All the Democrats voted. And so now Speaker McCarthy's gone. And now both caucuses, the Democrat and the Republican caucus, will go back in and they will vote on who they, it'll probably be Hakeem Jeffries on the Democrat side and the Republicans, they've got a couple of different candidates, which we'll get into in here in just a second. Uh, two quick super chats, one from Professor Keen, uh, want to run for speakership either in VA or DC, Nick? Me? That's what he asked. No, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> I don't know if you're paying attention, but people hate the speaker. Every <laughs> single speaker of every single house <laughs> is universally hated by the people. Well, and it, so do you want to get hated? I, I don't no, really want to be hated. Look, this, the speaker is a very important position and, and it is capable. You, you know, look, when Newt Gingrich first came in and speaker, I think there was a lot of things that he did in 1994 that, that were really beneficial. Um, I, I'm actually, I, I'm, I really like the speaker we have in the Virginia house of delegates, Todd Gilbert. Um, I'm the saying reason, that most, your average person that's looking at politics who doesn't like live and breathe the stuff and know these people personally, um, like all the crap rolls to the speaker. And so the speaker gets the brunt of every single bad well, decision. They, they do because a speaker has to, a speaker is not just representing their, um, their constituents in their district. A speaker has to manage the caucus. And the thing to understand about what we call like house leadership or Senate leadership it's not like you can command people to do what you want no. and then fire them if they don't, right? The way that they typically hold power is through committee assignments, through fundraising, and through the legislative process. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're a real problem for the caucus or a real problem for the speaker, you might lose your committee assignments. You might see your bills get shuffled off to a committee where it's just going to die a quiet death. When it comes to fundraising, you might not get any support in your reelection campaign. So that's typically right. how a, a speaker or how a major a minority leader in either party, you know, tries to keep control. Now, yeah. but I, I mean, the average person still, I would say, doesn't necessarily. Um, consider those factors. It's just like the chair of, of, of a party and a chair of a Republican committee and things like that. You yeah. just always end up with a, with a pretty big faction that just hates you because they think everything's your fault, even if it's not. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what it, there's, if you've ever watched the office, there's this uh, point where, Oh, what's his name? What's the guy that was kind of a punk? He, um, Oh gosh, he, Anyway, he gets in and he's like, lead me, but lead me in a way that I want to be led. Lead me when I feel like being led. That, that's <laughs> honestly, the speaker has got to feel that way sometimes, because again, it's not like the speaker can say you're fired. You're no longer elected, right? You work, you ultimately work for your constituents, not house leadership or party leadership, but there, there is various ways that they can, again, Pull power. Now, one of the things that's different between the speaker in Congress and the speaker like in Virginia, the speaker in Congress gets to assign members from his caucus to committees, but then the other caucus gets to assign their members to committees, right? So what he gets to assign is committee chairs, which is incredibly powerful, very powerful. In Virginia, the speaker assigns all of the committee members. So the like, for instance, if you're in the minority in Virginia, the speaker gets to decide where your party gets seats within the committee process. You can say, Hey, we would prefer these ones. 
The speaker does not have to, to recognize that. And I promise you, they usually don't. Like, I guarantee you, I got put on committees that didn't make a great deal of sense when um, the Democrats were in control of the Virginia House of Delegates. So it's just, again, some of the, the interesting reasons. So here, let's, let's go into this process. What is, you know, wh why did this happen? Because I think most people, when they looked at the fight uh, for McCarthy to become speaker in the first place, it, it kind of made sense the people that were were holding out because there was more like you know twenty at at that point a lot of more Freedom Caucus members one of the people the people that was not doing that that I there was I think some people were a little surprised this was Thomas Massey, and I would say that overall when I when I look at like my own kind of political ideology and I look for people in the House of Representatives that most closely reflect that Thomas Massey is probably the the closest for where I sit on most policy decisions maybe not all but but most. And I usually, I, I really appreciate the way Thomas Massey attacks the issues. And, and I've always had a great deal of respect for him being willing to stand up to power, regardless of where it comes from. He stood up to power. He was the one, he was one of the few guys, him and like Rand Paul in the Senate and maybe a couple others here and there. But Massey was the one when they were passing massive spending bills during COVID. Massey was the one where like, oh no, not, no, not no, but hell no. You're going to come here and vote for this if you want it. And he took heat from everybody to include Trump. And guess what? He was right. He was, he was right. right. The and reason that Massey didn't, work to oust McCarthy and didn't work to oppose him to begin. And he, and he's gotten some flack that I think is actually unjustifiable. People have looked at, at anybody that didn't vote with Gates on this and so, some people, and, and we're going to go into this because there's also a reverse to it. Yeah. Some people have looked at Gates and, and his band of followers, the eight people that voted with him in addition, in addition to all the Democrats to get rid of McCarthy as, um, as traitors yeah. to the caucus. And some people look at all the other Republicans that didn't vote with Gates as rhinos. And yeah. it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. There are differences of opinion. Some of this is about difference of strategy, not just difference in principle. Some of it is difference in principle. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of these people, it's difference in strategy. And in, in Massey's defense, Massey's argument against voting to, you know, to vacate the chair is he's old enough to remember because he was elected about a decade ago. He remembers when the similar fight happened in 2015. Mm -hmm. And to give some, some quick backstory on that, to, to explain how rare this is, this whole motion to vacate the chair has only been attempted three times in history. This is the only time that it's been successful. Yeah. The second, the, the previous time that it was attempted was in 2015. And the only reason it was unsuccessful was because Boehner resigned before it got it, it got happen. to a head. Um, it, 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 it was looking like he was not going to have the votes in order to retain the speakership, certainly by the next election. And and there was very possibly going to eventually be a floor vote. And so he resigned. Um, and then the time before that, you have to go all the way back to 1910 to find the last time. Those are the only three times that this has ever been attempted. And... Um, what's interesting is, is that we, we basically replicated what, what they have in a Westminster parliamentary style system where, where this was basically a vote of no, of no confidence, mm -hmm. right? And a majority of the house technically voted that they had no confidence in the speaker and thus the speaker's forced aside. That's how this usually works in parliamentary republics. We almost never see this happen here because we're not a parliamentary republic. We're not a parliamentary system. And, and so 
the speakership usually retains, you know, the, the speaker usually retains power because he has he or she has a stranglehold over their caucus. And so, like I said before, the, the rules under the Pelosi era was unless you got a majority of the caucus to support you, you're not going to be able to remove the speaker at all, even if you theoretically could get a majority of the entire chamber yeah. to vote with you. And that was one of the concessions that McCarthy gave in January. Now, Massey didn't vote against McCarthy in January, and he didn't vote to vacate the chair two days ago because he remembers what happened the second time in history that this was attempted. Boehner was pushed aside and Paul Ryan came into office and he saw everything that happened after that. And he concluded, well, Paul Ryan was just as bad on a policy perspective from Massey's point of view as Boehner was. And so sure, you might be able to cobble together enough Freedom Caucus people or enough arch conservatives to remove the speakership, but but that doesn't mean that you're going to get some champ. That doesn't mean you're going to get Donald Trump in there as speaker. Like well, some people are joking about how like we need to make Donald Trump speaker. Like somebody no, said, he's Gates, officially been nominated for speaker. Well, he will be, but but Gates has Gates has veto power to an extent, but that does not mean that he has approval power. And there's a yeah. big difference there. And so Massey has looked at this as you're just shuffling around. Well, and this this is the and here's why this is important is because there's. A lot of people look at this, okay, where's the pros, where's the cons? Massey actually has a different con, right? Most of the people look at this as this was a bad move or focusing, and we'll see a clip here from Newt Gingrich in a second, but most of the people are focusing on the idea that this is a distraction, this breeds chaos, this looks really bad in the press, we're going into an election season, and now it looks like Republicans can't govern because we can't even you know, keep our own house in order, we're, we're airing all of our dirty laundry. So a, a lot of the arguments have to do with the politics of a vote like this. And then some of it too, you know, some, some of your other Republicans might say this is also going to screw up the process for the, you know, future continuing resolutions and it could lead to government shutdowns and government shutdowns typically don't work out well for the party that is responsible for them or perceived to be responsible for them. So th those are, those are some of the arguments on why this shouldn't have done by people that oppose it. Again, to Christian's point, Massey's making a very, very different argument. Massey's making this more from a, a practical standpoint. And here's here's what I want to point out. This was in Reason Magazine. Uh, Massey said, in many ways, this is a referendum on whether the House is going to try regular order or not. Because the next speaker, if Kevin is deposed today, this was earlier, is not going to say, oh, if only we had tried more regular order, this is, could have worked out. The next speaker is going to go back to the Old Testament. And we're going to devolve to the former method, which was an omnibus bill every year and gang warfare to try and get your thing in the omnibus bill. So what Massey's talking about there was, you know, before they went, tried to regular order again, it used to be they cram a bunch of stuff in a bill and you didn't have any say on it. You couldn't do floor amendments. So the only way that you were going to get something was you had to take whatever the thing was you liked and crammed it into the omnibus bill that was going to be the thing that made it to the floor and that you all got to vote on. And it's a horrible process. Massey's absolutely correct that that is a horrible process. It shouldn't be done. And, and his whole point was McCarthy had reestablished regular order. And he looked at that as that was our best shot to keep it. And so he didn't see, like Massey was fine to vote no on some of the stuff that came to the floor. Because that is, again, if we're just being open and honest here, there's going to be things that make it to the floor that you don't like, and you still have the option of voting no. I do it all the time. In the Virginia House of Delegates, I vote no more than anybody. Um, and sometimes that's that's perceived as, well, you vote against your party more than more than any other Republican. That's right, because sometimes Republicans do stuff I don't agree with. 
And so that's Massey's argument. Now you, you could look at it and say, I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, but let me just give you some, let me just give you some background because for Massey and for anyone who wants to see Congress budget more responsibly, regular order is a big deal. Effectively, that means that Congress should bring each of its 12 annual spending bills to the floor via the process that everyone learns in civics class with committees voting on what to include in each, then amendments, then debate on the house floor before a final vote. Congress hasn't correctly completed that process on time since 1996. All right. So for for Massey, this was not about him liking the continuing resolution. This was not about him agreeing with Kevin McCarthy on policy. This was exclusively about I, I mean, from from whatever everything I've read about Massey so far is protecting regular order and him being very concerned and rightfully so that the next speaker that gets pulled in there because this whole thing with vacating the speaker, you can you can get away with that once. It's going to be really, really hard to continually do that because after a while, people are going to say, we just, we just can't do this, right? You're, you're going to lose the coalition of people that you need to vote with you on your own side to, in order to vacate the chair. And Massey's terrified that, great, what happens when the next speaker gets in there and says, well, that crap didn't work. We're going back to the old ways, uh, which are really the new ways if you think about it. But, um, and so that's, that's McCarthy's argument. So again, that's, think of that as a little bit separate. Now, we're going to watch a clip here um, from Newt Gingrich. So Newt Gingrich led the, you know, what they call the Republican Revolution in 1994. And to give you context on why this is important, this was the first time I think in, it was like 42 or 46 years. Over 40 years. Where, where the, the Republicans actually controlled the House of Representatives. So for over 40 years, Democrats had always controlled the House of Representatives. And so this was, this was a massive change. And if you looked at the way that, that Newt Gingrich did that in 94, he, they devised what they called the Contract with America. And what was so powerful about it was they listed out several items that they said, if you give us control of the House of Representatives, this is when Bill Clinton was president, we will in the first 100 days vote on the following things and we will pass them through the House. And they did. They made good on it. It was it was hugely popular. And in fact, they if you look at the first two years of uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, he was actually very liberal. Um, when the Republicans won the House in 94, that's when all of a sudden you saw Bill Clinton voting for things like welfare reform and, and um, the Defense of Marriage Act and stuff like you can't even imagine a Democrat supporting nowadays. But it was it was in part because Republicans didn't just say, put us in power and we'll do good things. They were very, very specific on we will do these things and we will do them within the first hundred days. And if we don't fire us and they actually did a very, very good job in that first moment. Now. So that's where Newt Gingrich is coming from. He, he, has, some, he has some credentials uh, with old school conservatives uh, because of that 94 revolution. I will say this. I think he changed quite a bit over time. Uh, but do we got a question before we're going to move yeah, on? Yeah, I got okay. one question before we go uh, to the video. This one's from Jeffrey Britton. Great question. Why is, it that, why is it a given that the next speaker is likely to do away with any further movement toward regular order? I, I wouldn't I say it's, it's a, I don't think it's a given. What it is is a possibility. So what Massey's saying is I have a speaker right now that will do regular order. I have no guarantee that a future speaker okay. will want to do regular order. He may want to consolidate power and he may go back to the, the old. And look, this is, a, this is a valid concern. It's this idea of, of one person consolidating such power as to absolutely control the process. And, and I, I will tell you if, if 
the reason why you should be concerned about it is obviously our whole system of government is designed to prevent the over-centralization of power in the hands of too few people. And, and another organization that does a great job of, of combating against the over-centralization of power is Good Ranchers. That's right, right? Because right now, too much of our food, especially when it comes to meat and meat processing, is in the hands of too few people, and they're very, very powerful lobbyists in Congress. Now, coincidentally, Thomas Massey is actually trying to do something about that right now, which I really, really appreciate it. But the fact that Good Ranchers is fighting that battle by teaming up with incredibly good, high-quality you know, producers, American producers of quality Pork, beef, poultry, and now even wild-caught seafood, right? Where they're going to consolidate all of that into an excellent package with great value, and they're going to deliver it directly to your door. And guess what? Today, I believe, is the last day of a particular deal. We're standing by for another deal. But the, the deal that we've been talking about this whole time where you get $25 off, free shipping, right? And... If you order on one of the subscriptions, which you can set a monthly subscription, three-month subscription, again, they're giving you options. They believe in freedom. You set that subscription, you're going to get an additional two pounds of quality ground beef with every single order completely free of charge. But when, when, is, that, when is that in? Nick, it actually ends uh, tomorrow night. Tomorrow Friday night. the 6th at 12 a.m. So this is this is your opportunity right now. If you've been wondering about, like you, you hear me talk about this, and we try to make it an interesting segue into this ad, but if you're wondering about trying about it, this is the time to try it. Because again, you're not just, you're not just going to get quality, quality beef, pork, poultry, and wild-caught seafood. You're also supporting us. So if you're looking for a way to support the show and... Provide your family with quality, quality food. Good Ranch is the way to do it. And if you want to get it on this deal, consider it. Give, give, yourself, give yourself to the end of the show to consider it. And then throw a party and completely staff it with Good Ranchers meat. <laughs> and then go right? check out our circle chat and look up my recipe for buffalo chicken mac. Yeah, There you go. It's Great idea. We, we will also be doing other recipes in there too with, with excellent Good Ranchers products. I wasn't sure how you were going to go with this. I thought since we were talking about Congress, you might go with the pork route and be like, well, this is good pork, not <laughs> the, the sausage bad making. <laughs> Let me tell you about the real sausage making. Yeah. Over at- <laughs> real, real quick, before we move on to our audio listeners, don't forget I've put the link for you in the show notes. Use that link use promo code nick so that good ranchers knows that we sent you okay so let's go ahead and move on to this clip from newt gingrich newt gingrich is kind of going to explain um what he, why he's frustrated with this vote and why he thinks it was a, a bad deal so let's go ahead and play that clip 96 percent of the republicans voted for mccarthy four percent voted against him from my position as a longtime republican activist they're traitors all eight of them should in fact be primaried. They should all be driven out of public life. What they did was to go to the other team to cause total chaos. We ought to be focusing on Biden. We ought to be focusing on the economy. We ought to be focusing on the border. Instead, you're gonna get a week or 10 days of the media focusing on Republican disarray. It's an astonishingly destructive behavior by a handful of egocentric people who think they're superior to 96% of the conference. 
Okay. So Newt, Newt does not. He told us what he really thought. Newt, yeah, Newt. I, I don't think anyone's walking away from that going, I wonder what Newt meant by that. <laughs> right. It's um, so Newt's taking the route and, and you kind of saw what I, what I discussed earlier. The, the reason why Newt thinks this is a bad idea. Gingrich thinks this is a bad idea is because is, is totally focused around this idea of we're not focusing on the right things. The media is going to trash Republicans over this. It's going to be bad for us politically. I'm, I'm sure he also believes that there's bad you know, policy involved in this as well, because again, it's difficult to, it's difficult to manage a caucus in the first place. And now it just became even more difficult, right? So that, that's it. That's his policy argument. And then his political argument is we're not focusing on the right things that we should be. Um, and then he, and then he goes on so far as to say they should all be primary. They're all traitors. It, it, here's what, you know, before I, before I get to my analysis of that, I kind of want to hear what, what let's hear what somebody who voted against the speaker actually has to say. Let's hear the counter take from someone that was there before we give our own analysis. And this is actually from uh, Bob Good, who's a congressman here in Virginia. I, I actually, I, I know Bob uh, pretty well. Um, my, my, again, I gave you kind of my, my background, uh, opinion with Newt Gingrich and, and my respect, especially for what he did in 94. Um, what I really respect about Bob Good, who's, who's relatively new to the house, he's on his second term right now is, um, you know, regardless of, of what you might think of, of Bob Good's politics or whatnot, I have always found Bob Good to be incredibly honest, very direct. Like you're, you're not wondering what, what Bob's going to do, or is, is he going to tell you one thing and do something else? If Bob tells you he's going to do something, he will do it. Um, even if you don't like it, right? So I, I've I've always found Bob Good to be very very honest on top of being a very very conservative. Um, I'm I'm probably a little bit more on the on the the liberty side of conservative. He's a little bit more on what you might call the traditional side of conservative. But I, I do have a lot of respect for him as as a a man of his word. And he explains a little bit about why he chose to be one of the people that voted against McCarthy in this. So let's go and look at this clip. Of course. So first off, the big question here, I want to get your take. What led you to actually vote to oust McCarthy? Why did you feel that that is what you wanted to do? Well, cutting right to the chase, the final straw was Saturday's continuing resolution, which is a representation of the failures of the past being revisited, the failures of this year, that we would pass an unconditional continuing resolution for 45 days because we had not done our job and passed our 12 spending bills, as Speaker McCarthy promised we would. And then it would be an unconditional continuing resolution that would keep in place all the Biden, Pelosi, Schumer policies that are destroying the country and under which the American people are suffering, not to mention the spending levels that are bankrupting our country, bankrupting our kids and our grandkids' financial futures. And we would do that with 209 Democrat votes in the House, only one opposing. Pause and right 51 here. So just so everyone understands what he's talking about is, is the 90 Republicans that voted against this are going to be more of your, your conservative uh, fiscal hawks there. A lot of them have problems with all of the money that's going to Ukraine. Um, and then your 126, that's, that's going to be a combination of your more moderate Republicans. It's also going to be certain Republicans that probably think, well, look, there's not a whole lot we can do right now because you have a Democrat controlled Senate and ultimately they're going to have to cast their vote on the budget as well. And we don't want the government to shut down. Right. So that, that's kind of like the philosophy behind the 126 Republicans that voted yes. And then the fact that all of the Democrats, except for one, voted in favor of this as well, demonstrates that this, this is a budget that Democrats, or this is a continuing resolution that was far more in favor of what Democrats were looking for than what the Republican and caucus you can tell was looking by, for. You can tell that by the nays. You yeah. can tell that all the Democrats, except for one, voted yes. And you had 90 Republicans that voted no. Yeah. But th what this reminds me of, and, and 
one one important thing I think to point out is that there is a swath of the of the Republicans that will do whatever the speaker wants them to do because they're it's a, they're in self-preservation mode. There's a lot of things that everyone has different things they're working on. Everyone has certain bills that are kind of their baby. And so sometimes they will be trying to protect their baby and so they will vote whatever is safest with the speaker in hopes that their baby will get to the floor for a vote, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, we saw this in Virginia when there was the passage of, um, uh, shoot, it, it was... Now we we weren't in charge, but the majority leader wanted certain oh, no. Republicans to vote for the um, Medicaid expansion. No, we were in charge when that. Oh, happened. we were. We were in charge of the House. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So so basically, the Republicans wanted uh, the the Republican House, the Speaker of the House, the the caucus vote was to vote for Medicaid expansion. Well, okay. I'm going to stop you right here because that's not, that's, it is a little bit different. The the speaker of the house at the time was a Republican. We had the Republican house, but we had a Democrat governor. Yeah. We had gone from a 64 seat majority in the house to a a one seat majority. And literally the majority was decided by someone picking a name out of the thing because the vote was tied in one of the races. But kind of similar to what we have on the national scale right now, you've got the Senate in the hands of the left. You've got the presidency in the hands of the left, and then you have a pretty narrow majority, not quite as narrow as Virginia no, this, had. It, it, but babe, I'm sorry, this was this was different because we we what we had then was we had a, a very very we had a Republican who at the time Emmett Hanger wanted to vote for Medicaid expansion in the Senate, and so basically the Senate Republicans couldn't hold on on Medicaid expansion, and then we had we had quite a few members of the Republican House that wanted to vote for it, including and the Speaker at that point thought it there had to be a negotiated right. version of Medicaid expansion where we weren't going to get one. Now I, I will say this: so there were I certain was, Republicans that were willing to bite the bullet on that and go, we're going to go ahead and do this deal. Now there were a ton that refused to do the deal, but as far as anybody else is concerned, what the newspapers say and every everywhere else is this was a bipartisan deal, but it really wasn't bipartisan. It really wasn't. I, I mean, it, it, just it, like this it, wasn't bipartisan. It was what it was. The, the, the point, the point, the point with this is that I understand that there is, there is a lot of motivation. If you don't feel passionately about a particular bill, or a particular resolution, you are you are more likely to vote in favor with the majority of the caucus or with with, with leadership, because mm-hmm. if you if you don't if you don't really care if you don't think the bill really matters or whatever it is, right? You're, you're why are you going to make enemies over it? Yeah. Right. Now, there are now, certain ones that will just vote however the speaker or however leadership wants them to vote. You let, always have those. Let's go on with the rest of the clip here. One to zero Democrats supporting it in the Senate. Uh, that is what we've done in the past under Republican leadership when we've had House majorities. It's what we did with the failed Responsibility Act, the unconditional debt ceiling agreement, where we uh, unconditionally raised the debt ceiling to as much as we can spend between now and January 25, overwhelmingly supported by Democrats. That was another loser and a failure of Republican leadership. We cannot afford the status quo. That's how we got to 33 trillion national debt and over $2 trillion deficit this year. We need transformational change in Congress. That wasn't going to happen with Kevin McCarthy as speaker. To, when to the vote be- Bob Good's point, it's worth noting that in the last 15 days since this happened, the federal debt has increased by $500 billion in 15 days. I'm old enough to remember when a $500 billion budget deficit used to represent the entire year 
of federal spending. Yeah. That was 15 days. I mean, we're, we're on track to, to have like a, a budget deficit, like over like $2 trillion over the next 12 months. In fact, it might even be more than that. So like to, to, to Bob Good's point on this, that was actually the thing. And if you, if you go and talk to, to Matt Gates, Matt Gates will tell you, in fact, he, he, he said it on the floor. The reason that he filed the motion to vacate it in the first place, the reason this all started mm-hmm. is because there was a continuing resolution that was passed by both chambers right before a shutdown was supposed to happen. And you saw a, a slim majority of the Republican conference vote with literally all the Democrats, like he said, to, to fund the government without any preconditions whatsoever for over a year. Yeah. And Gates looked at that as a betrayal of the compromise that was struck in January to give the speakership to McCarthy, because yeah. one of the things that, that, that those 90 Republicans, obviously not all of them voted to vacate the chair, but those 90 Republicans were reminded me of, of the, the tea party Republicans of a, of a generation ago or a decade ago when they got into power after 2010 one of their top priorities was we need to get spending under control. And what you've seen over the last 12 years has been large swaths of the Republican rank and file have basically been in, in open warfare with their own party leadership. And the reason why is because quite frankly, and I, I told the people in circle this, I'm, I'm actually going to just, just read it off because I, I, I wrote it better than I could possibly say it live. I said that, um, you know, an interesting fact that I found is that the Republican Party's rank and file have been, again, in a straight fight with their party's leadership or speaker for 12 years straight. But a better way of describing things is that the GOP establishment within the Republican Party has spent the last 12 years waging war on its own rank and file voters. And then I went on to say that uh, the conservative consulting class wants forever wars, open borders and endless debt fueled money printing. The repeated leadership fights you see in the House of Representatives stems from the utter disdain that many Republican politicians have towards their own party base. And what I mean by all this is people like Gates looked at the fact that we passed this continuing resolution and then literally within within just days, the deficit exploded by hundreds of billions of dollars. It's north of 33 trillion. It's going to it's going to hit 34 trillion in probably a month or two. It, we've talked about this on this podcast before, the whole looming sovereign debt crisis yeah. that we're barreling towards. People like Bob Good and Gates, there's a lot that I disagree with them on, but on this one thing, on the fiscal side of this, they're absolutely right. And there is absolutely no stomach except for a handful of holdouts in Washington, D.C. to prevent the coming fiscal and monetary catastrophe that that quite frankly awaits us. Well, let, let's look at the other thing. That, so so Bob Good is essentially saying that he looks at he looks at the vote against McCarthy is essentially calling McCarthy to the carpet because. McCarthy made certain promises and he doesn't feel he lived up to him. So that's, that's Bob's argument. That's, that's Matt Gates argument. Um, and, and again, people can disagree with that, but they're, they've, they've, they're bringing up a valid point. Um, now there's, there's another argument that's going to come up here that I thought was interesting and it's Bob Good kind of responding to some of the criticism. So let's go ahead and, and play that play this through so we can hear that response as well. Began. Did you think that the votes were there to actually remove McCarthy from his leadership? Was it kind of a gamble at that point? Did you think this is what was going to happen? 
I, I had thought we were somewhere in the range of 10 members. We had 11, as you know, vote to allow it to proceed, voted against tabling the motion. Ultimately, we had eight who voted to vacate. And I thought that was the range that it would be. There was a couple others I thought might be there. But I will tell you that uh, very few members of Congress actually privately, privately will defend, or at least on the Republican, Republican side, will defend Kevin McCarthy privately. They've recognized that he's been a, a feckless, ineffective uh, leader who's dillied and dallied and, and fretted and frittered away time and didn't lead us to passing our spending bills, didn't keep his commitments, would tell one group one thing, tell another group another thing. So privately, very few defended him. Privately, many knew that he was not the person to lead us in fighting with every tool at our disposal against the Biden, Pelosi, Schumer agenda that was in place. Uh, but but of course, members of Congress are risk averse and uh, self. <laughs> the the risk averse and self-preserving thing is, yeah, there, there, there's there's a lot of truth to that. And and this is something, too, that I think it's, it's important for people to understand and sometimes that we forget is that w- when you elect someone, I mean, w- we are <laughs> we are selecting representatives from the same pool of human beings as, you know, exist in the country. It's not as if something, you know, changes when, when you go down to um, DC or to Richmond or everything else, there, there is a natural inclination to want to get along and be able to work with your colleagues. And, and that's not, that's not necessarily a bad inclination until it drives you to the point where now you're, you're, you're breaking promises or you're doing something that violates what you told your constituents that you believed or, or whatnot. So, you know, part of what you're hearing there is, is Congressman Good's analysis of Kevin McCarthy's leadership. And that shouldn't come as a, a big surprise. Bob Good was one of the original people that I, I don't think wanted McCarthy to be speaker in the first place. Um, but, you know, again, some, some of that's opinion on leadership and we can all acknowledge that it is a difficult leadership position. And then, um, and then again, it's the other, it's the other analysis of breaking the promise, but the, the real part I wanted to get to it and it, it should be coming up here in just a moment. And that is kind of his response to some of the Newt Gingrich, uh, criticism. Go ahead and hit play preservation and selfish ambition uh, probably prevails. And so you have a reluctance to, to, to take risks and to go against the status quo. Uh, but, but, but we have a new day, a new opportunity to choose a speaker that reflects the conservative center of the conference, the conservative center of the Republican base who gave us a majority and will be a true fighter, a true fighter and a true leader uh, in the tough negotiations we have to have with the Senate and the White House. And during a news conference last night, McCarthy did say that he does not have plans to run for the speaker position again. Is that surprising? Is that what you'd expect? Well, I, I and many others had hoped that he would uh, essentially take the high road and not put the conference through that. It was clear that there were far more than eight that would oppose him if he were to try to run again. Everyone was basically ready, I shouldn't say everyone, but many members were uh, ready to turn the page and move forward on someone who could, could get to 218. And this will be a win for the American people uh, in addition to Republicans across the country because instead of having a coronation of sort of the next in line, the presumptive speaker, the, 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 the one uh, who no one can challenge, uh, we will have a true contest. There's half a dozen or so members who've expressed their interest. We have a talented conference of qualified, experienced individuals. Uh, and so what we'll do is we'll vet those candidates. We'll debate those candidates. They'll present their their sort of platforms of what they will do as speaker. And we'll have that contest uh, beginning Tuesday night with, with a House uh, candidate forum, a Republican House candidate forum. And hopefully in short order, you know, Wednesday, Thursday or soon thereafter, we will emerge united from the Republican conference and vote someone in with 221 votes on the House floor. And that leads into my next question here. Who do you feel would be best? Let's to replace go ahead and Mc- let's go ahead and go past this because you're going to get some. I mean, 
he's given some analysis. He's not going to give names on who he wants. I, I will tell you right now, as we get into this later on who we think is going to replace it. I, I think it's really between two people. Um, but if we can, if we can fast forward a little bit past this, um, there are the as. Yeah, just kind of scroll the little thing in the bottom. I, I, this is my fault, too. I should have done this uh, when we were talking about this earlier. But um, there's the part where he's he's specifically responding uh, to to Newt Gingrich's allegations about what we, we should be focusing on. And one of the things that, that he get asked, and, I, and look, I watch it so I can just tell everyone what he basically says, is that he was essentially going through this process of, well, what about you know Newt Gingrich and others that say that you're focusing on the wrong thing, that this is creating chaos, that what's you know really going on is that instead of focusing on Biden and, and Schumer and, and everyone else, that, you know, now we're going to be in this situation where, again, the entire news cycle is just focused around Republicans can't get their crap together. And I think that, again, Bob Good, whether you agree with this decision or not, I think he does a good job of articulating the argument from his side and from his perspective. Um, and, and that's where he goes into the, okay, well, what exactly, when, when people say, because we vacated the chair, we're not focusing on, you know, um, uh, Biden administration, everything they're doing wrong. He was like, no, that's, that's kind of the, the point um, is that in, in order to focus on those things, Republicans have to actually fight. Republicans have to actually bring these things up. They have to make them issues that when Democrats are insisting on, you know, budget dollars or, or, you know, tens of millions of dollars continuing to go to, you know, or excuse me, actually like billions going to Ukraine or the Southern border or, you know, whatever it is, we have to create conditions where we force Democrats to defend those positions. And you don't do that if all of a sudden you're buying into them and now you're forcing the caucus to vote on these things under the, under the auspices of, well, if you don't vote for billions of dollars to Ukraine, well, then veterans aren't going to get their medicine. And, and he's calling that out as, well, this is, a false, this is a false dilemma because we could vote to make sure that veterans get all of their stuff. We could take all of the issues that are not controversial and we could vote for those up front. And then we could address the controversial ones. Like, what? why can't we do that? And the argument he's making is, well, the reason why people don't want to do that, the reason why they don't want to fund what almost everybody considers to be essential functions um, or things that we consider to be, um, you know, making good on promises, like, again, veterans benefits and things like that, is because they make the best hostage-taking tools. Yep. They make the best hostage-taking tools. Human beings make great leverage. And and this is the part where, you know, I, I've, I've been in the General Assembly eight years, which means I voted on four biannual budgets and four what we call our caboose budget, right, which is our – we vote on a two-year budget in Virginia. And, and we have a constitutional amendment in Virginia which says we have to balance our budget, we have to pass budgets. And then what we do is we have a follow-on um, – you know, kind of uh, think of it as almost something like an amendment to the the biannual budget that we pass based off of, uh, you know, new developments with respect to revenues that, that either came in or weren't there or whatever else it is, right? So it's it's almost like correcting the, the two-year budget uh, based off of what we thought we were going to bring in versus what we're actually bringing in and what we're actually getting. And I've, I think I voted for final passage. I think I voted for one of them. And believe me that that puts you in a very uncomfortable position because this last budget that we just uh, voted for this last, you know, um, 
change in the budget that we voted for. The vote, I think, was um, it, it was somewhere around 90, I think it was like 92 to four. And I, I was one of the four people that voted against the budget. And when you do that, you realize that there's, there's consequences involved. Um, and, and part of what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, look, I, I have to take a stand. Now, does that mean that there's never portions where you can compromise on something and you can recognize that you're not going to get everything that you want, but a budget is, is does more good than it does harm. And so you vote for it. Sure. That may, I think that's a, a logical position to take, but then you also draw certain lines in the sand and, and you know, you draw lines in the sand of if this is in the budget, I'm not voting for it. And then what you do is you establish consistency over time. So that where now your colleagues know, look, it's real simple. If you want my vote, you don't do this in the budget. Well, the line in the sand that was, was kind of drawn here by a lot of the, the Republicans was essentially, we were supposed to do things differently. This was part of the negotiated agreement. You didn't make good on the negotiated agreement from our standpoint. The one mechanism that we have to hold you accountable, accountable is a vote to vacate the chair. And so that's what we're doing. And, the, and this is the part where when you look at Bob Good's explanation, because he, he didn't just give an argument for... Uh, policy, like his policy argument was, no, we have to do this because Speaker McCarthy's not fighting the way he said he would fight and promised the way he would fight. That's the policy. The politics argument that Bob Good is making is that, no, this is better for us politically because the only way we're going to win is if Republicans are, are seen is actually providing an alternative from the Democrats. And if every time it gets difficult, if every time it gets tough, Republican leadership just says, well, the Senate won't let us do it, or well, Joe Biden won't sign it. Well, then we're not actually providing contrast. We're just kind of going along with whatever they, they dictate to us. And yeah, maybe we get some concessions in the process, but if Democrats over time recognize that Republican leadership will not fight hard under these conditions, then they don't have an incentive to fight hard. They can simply go back to the constituents and repeatedly say over and over and over again, well, the only way we can change anything is if we get the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And let me tell you why nobody is buying that line anymore. It's because in Donald Trump's first two years in office, we had the House, we had the Senate, we had the Trump presidency, and it was the House of Representatives, specifically under Speaker Ryan, that held up significant portions of the Trump of Trump's presidential agenda. When you do that, the base notices. And this is the problem that I have with Newt Gingrich's analysis of this. It's just, well, we should be focusing on this, this, and that. Okay. If by focus, you mean talking about it, you're already doing that. If by focus, you mean actually leveraging the power that you have to be able to demonstrate a clear alternative, well, then now I'm not so sure that you're serious about that. If you're going to insist on, on continuing resolutions like this, if you're not going to go through the process of actually going through regular order the way it was intended with something like budget, budget um, lines. And this is the part where I think Republican leadership needs to appreciate something. Again, regardless- Can I ask a quick question? Under Gingrich, did they have regular order? Um, I think they did. Yeah, I think they did, actually. It wasn't until, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they did until the end there because yeah. Gingrich was in office until, I believe, 98. And 96 yeah. was the last year that they actually, 1996 was the last year that we actually like passed a budget in the proper format yeah. that most people think of when they think of how 
Congress should be passing a budget. In fact, there was a law from the 70s stipulating how Congress is supposed to go about the process of passing a budget. And again, we we haven't followed that process in what, like over 25 years now, almost 30 years. Yeah, no, it's 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 been nuts, but it's. The, the part that I'm trying to get people to understand is that even even if you don't like this decision, because Thomas Massey, who I enormously respect, thought this was a bad idea. But what I don't like is when Newt Gingrich gets up and goes, anybody that's doing this is an egocentric, you know, you know, traitor to the party. I'm going to read off the names of the people real quick. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because I actually know quite a few of them. So Andy Biggs of Arizona. I know Andy. Ken Buck of Colorado. I know Ken. Tim Burchett of Tennessee, I don't know. Eli Crane of Arizona, I don't know. Matt Gates, I don't know. Bob Good of Virginia, I know very well. Nancy Mace of South Carolina, I knew Nancy before she was a, a, a member of Congress. Matt Rosendale, I know, I knew before he was a member of Congress. Like, and, and I don't mean like I met them in their office. I mean like sat down, had dinner, went to similar events, campaigned with them. Like I, I know these people. And and I, I will say that I, I know that, you know, Matt has a reputation for being somewhat egotistical and sometimes very, um, what's the word? Um, bombastic, kind of bombastic, kind of reckless at times. Matt Rosendale in Montana, Matt, I, I, every impression I have of Matt from the, from the numerous times I've, I've, I've spent time with him and whatnot is Matt is a man of his word and he is tired of business always being run the same way. He, he wants their, he wants to see a fight. He, he's not an unreasonable person, but he wants to see a fight. He wants to see an effort. Um, you know, Andy Biggs has played a, a major leadership role within the, the Freedom Caucus, Ken Buck as well. Tim Burchett has led the charge on the UFO stuff. <laughs> yeah. He's the guy that, that pushed for that hearing that we talked about. I don't know a few if that helps ago. you with our base. But. <laughs> no, but no, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, look, I don't, I, I'm not saying I know all these people super well and I know all their motivations, but, but a lot of the ones I do know, I, I, there's a lot of people in here that these, these are guys that they're very genuine when they say, I want you to fight. If, if you fight and you get bloody and, 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 and we lose a little, I would rather that than to just capitulate, roll over and, and once again, do a negotiated surrender. I just want to see a fight because the fight is what tells people that if you put us in power, you can trust us. <laughs> if you can trust us to fight when we don't have all the power, you can trust us to fight when we do. And, and too many, too many within the Republican base have been taught that if we give concessions while we're not in power, then when we get power, that's when we'll fight. And then what they end up finding out is no, many of them won't even fight then because they're too worried about their next election cycle. And that's the reality. And, and I've had this conversation with, with people that I really respect when they're telling me, well, Nick, you know, if we do that, we're, we're not going to be able to get a majority or we might lose the majority. I'll be like, when are you going to realize that you're going to lose the majority if you don't fight. You're going to lose the majority if you don't make good on your promises. And, and it's this, this, it's this mindset that will know the base will always understand that the alternative to us is so much worse. It's like, no, the base is at a point and they're going to say, this isn't the base. This is eight. Repu-. I guarantee you there's a lot more in the base that think this was a good move. The base is at the point where it's like, so be it. If, if I've got a, I would rather fight and lose than surrender and be a part of the problem. And, and so again, you may think that is an unfair characteristic. You may think that's not an accurate reflection of what's going on. Well, I'll tell you this much for all the people that are constantly telling me, well, Nick, you can't do that because perception is reality. Yeah. Well, that works both ways. Yep. And the perception now within the Republican base 
is Republicans don't fight. And when Republicans have power, they don't fight. And Republicans have all the power. They don't fight. Yeah, it's worth noting that Republicans have a word for people who who don't do what they say they will do, and that's rhino. Do yeah. Democrats have a similar word within their party? Yeah, yeah. They every. I mean, the resist libs will use the phrase "dino." Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but they're but, mostly confined to just Twitter. But how often do you actually <laughs> Sorry, hear X. that? Like for Republicans, you hear "rhino" as like a normal part of conversation. You don't hear that on the left. You know, and so it's clear that we have this problem. It has been a pernicious problem for a very long time. People that, or we could call them establishment even, where they their biggest concern is staying elected or gaining power. And, and it's because they really believe that they need that power in order to do all of the good things they intend to do. It's just they never get around to doing it because they're so worried about staying in power. Like I said, the leadership fights that you've seen in Congress on the Republican side for the last 12 years largely stems from the fact that there is a significant, dare I say, majority of the Republican conference in the House of Representatives, quite frankly, hates their own voting base and thinks that they're stupid. The right... The, con- the consulting class and the beltway class in the right panders to their left and scorns to their right mm-hmm. repeatedly. And you know what? The left panders to their left and scorns to their right as well. And so this is why you see this ratchet effect where no matter what happens, no matter who's in office, no matter what the last election produced, the country just Cthulhu just constantly swims to the left. The Leviathan constantly swims to the left. Like I've, I think I've brought this up maybe once or twice before on the show. Think of the last four major right-wing, conservative, Republican electoral victories. And then think of the year before that happened. Mm -hmm. Before this supposedly tectonic shift to the right. And then ask yourself, did the year before that election happen, was, was the country more to the right that year than it is today? Ask yourself, we'll start with Ronald Reagan in 1980. Is the country more to the left today than it was in 1979? I would say absolutely it is. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly fiscally and monetarily, we're, we're further down the path to destruction. What well, about you? You brought up Gingrich. What about 1993, the year before the Republican yeah. Revolution yeah. in 1994? Is the country more to the left or right? That was the year before I was born. Is the country more to the left or right today than it was in well, 1993? I, I, I will say this it's more to the left today. But it wasn't more to the left in 96. I mean, so this is this is one of the big differences is that um, when you looked at the contract with America, which was the last time I felt the, the Republican Party ran House candidates under a very, very good and unified message. And it was because objective standards and a timeline, right? Usually, usually you only get... <laughs> Half the time you don't even get either of those. What you get is like like esoteric things, low taxes, I'll fight for your freedom. What does that mean in a practical level? Right. And then sometimes what you'll get, and Boehner tried to do this, sometimes what you'll get is the idea of we want to pass these things. Well, now, okay, now you've given me something objective. You've given me something specific. We're gonna we're gonna do border security. We're gonna pass a budget for border security, or we're going to cut taxes by this amount, or we're gonna do that. Those are specifics. What the Republicans did in 94, and, and remember that there was something before Obamacare, it was called Hillary Care, and that was going on in the first two years of the, the Clinton administration. Republicans came in and basically said, if you elect us, we will do welfare reform. We will do a balanced budget amendment. We will do, I mean, boom, 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 boom. 
in the first 100 days. We will pass all of these bills in the first 100 days. And it created this, it created this incredible experiment where, where voters got to say, you know what? I like some of that stuff. And a hundred days means I get to check back real quick to see if you did your job. Haven't done that since. Not to my knowledge. Allow me to gently push back mildly. To to I I think that we're further to the left than we were in 1996 today. No, of no, 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 no. I didn't say that. I said that we were further to the right in 96 than we were in 94. Sure, That's, sure. What I'm saying was is that there was a there, there was, was a temporary we're, we're, swing back. Yeah, to there the was right. a temporary swing back. But the reason why that swing back happened is not because Republicans got in there and said, okay, everyone, now let's moderate our message and let's like run to the middle and let's make sure we don't make anybody too upset. Let's wreck this train a little more gently than the other <laughs> yeah. guys would have. Yeah, they didn't do that. They said, and and that was that's what's so important is if you can get people on a, a, a list of, of categories, a list of, of objectives and a timeline for where you're going to achieve them, voters will give you a chance. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, we have a lot of people in Republican leadership at the national level that don't seem to get that. Like everyone, and the consultant class plays a huge role in this because mm-hmm. the consultant class gets paid whether you win or lose. And, and in addition to that, it's a recession proof, uh, industry. They are very electoral politics. Yes. And they I are speak very from, from personal experience and they're very risk averse. <laughs> and, and that's not to say there's not good consultants out there. there I'm are. definitely not. I'm definitely not risk averse on that front. I, I, everybody who knows me knows that I'm, I, if, if I was in con, I mean, if I was, was representing Culpeper County in Congress, I would have voted to oust McCarthy. I wouldn't have voted for McCarthy to speak. Okay, we're not getting into that part. I know. Gosh, can you read the outline? To back back up for a second, to to go through the last two supposedly big right-wing victories electorally, I would also argue that we're further to the left. I, I, I not even argue. I know we're further to the left than we were in 2009. Yes. And I know... Were for before the the Tea Party wave of 2010, and then finally yeah, is, Trump's victory in 2016. I also feel like we're further to the left than we were in 2015. Oh no, I question. don't see a no black pill Look at the Great Awakening and to this. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, we get that, but that's not really the point that we're discussing right now. Like, I, I get it; it's all gone. Yeah, little, okay, the, I, the, the reason I get, that I bring up, I get the argument. The argument is is that Republicans are losing faith in their in their yes. representatives and the leadership because it seems that even there's there's temporary respite, but there's never a real change of course. I, I, Conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. That's what yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that's yeah. what it's become. But there is there is an element that that I I have to say, um, you know how sometimes it seems like the longer somebody is in um, office and and the longer they're in power, the more they end up seemingly despising their base. And I feel like sometimes some of that can stem from how fickle. Sometimes the base can be extremely, extremely fickle. And so I have watched, I have watched like stalwart conservatives who were just like amazing lose heart because their conservative base completely betrays them, even though they are, um, they're doing everything they said they would do. They are fighting for them every step of the way, but somebody else has come in with like another message and they're a bright, shiny object. And so now they like that person better. And now your old news, your old hat, and like, let's go ahead and like slam you every chance we get so that we can like this new person. And so then they basically, be- we've, we've seen some of the base totally betray their most conservative members who remain conservative even after they've been de- betrayed. Um, 
and and totally like shuffle them aside as if they're old news, like their their establishment, like they're like they've been there forever. And it's like this guy's been fighting for you this whole time, even after you've lambasted him and lied about him and whatever ads or whatever, he's still fighting for you. And 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 at the end of the day, sometimes I want to look back and go, you deserve what you get. You know what this reminds me of? The crisis of the Roman Republic. Oh my gosh. There we go. <laughs> Nick and I were looking at the chat. There was so, I don't know where this came from. There were so many comments from people that was saying things like, Christian needs to make a comparison between the Speaker of the House situation and the Roman Empire so we know that he's real. <laughs> like over and over and over again. So there he goes. There you guys go. This is uh, this is our version of the, no, the, yeah. the crisis no, I, of the third century. Have you but, thought about the crisis of the 21st century? <laughs> but do I make a point, Christian? Have you seen that happen? No, no, Tina, you're, you're totally, so all joking aside with the roaming stuff, I, by the way, I hope that that, I hope that that made you guys laugh there in the chat, but um. Tina, you're you're totally right, and and I think that that what's happened is, and quite frankly, this is why we got Trump. I, I remember I wrote this in like 2016 when I really really did not like Trump at the time. I still don't really like him. Some of the personal stuff that he does, and and I certainly didn't like the money printing stuff that he pushed. But um, I, I I had this like probably somewhat unwarranted animosity towards Trump because his style and tone in 2016 was not my cup of tea at the time. I was not yet in the whole burn it down, bomb throwing, black pilled mode that I have <laughs> since moved towards. But I remember I wrote something in 2016 that Donald Trump is the punishment that the establishment wing or the moderate wing, whatever you want to call them, the, the beltway class, you know, wing of the Republican Party gets for the fact that, quite frankly, they have betrayed their base over and over and over again. For the longest time, the base was was trying to send reasonable people to D.C., to to get what they wanted they sent they sent people like Rand paul they sent people like justin amasha dc these were not bomb throwers they were very very principled people very principled in fact arguably to a fault you didn't think justin amash was a bomb thrower he became a bomb thrower Oh, okay <laughs> but same thing with Rand paul Rand paul was not originally a bomb thrower right like like people forget that Rand paul had a very close relationship with mitch mcconnell for a long time well, they're very conservative from the same state. Yes, yeah. very conservative guy, but not a bomb thrower. He simply wanted to 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 fight for what his constituents sent him for, for what the GOP base was advocating for. And you know what? The Republican Party establishment scorned those people. I remember when like like Amash was kicked off the budget committee because he he wanted to fight for actual real spending cuts, not slowing down the rate of growth, actually cutting spending. Yeah. I remember Rand Paul was sidelined when he wanted actual spending cuts. And so the response from the base was, we sent you people that were principled, but reasonable, willing to negotiate. Yeah. We're not going to send you people that aren't going to negotiate. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any question of that. And, and there, there are times like to Tina's point and to what Christian was saying as well. There are the times too, where I, I think, um, be, because especially with the conservative base, there is such a, um, there's such a history of being betrayed that it, it is it is easy to presume that everyone just gets corrupted as soon as they go to D.C. or Richmond or you know Albany or wherever wherever your state capital is, um, and and it's it's important to be able to differentiate between the people that do you know remain fighting. And, and the people that don't and, and nobody is beyond being held accountable. I mean, that, that's an important part, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting one. We got, um, do we got a, question? we got a super chat here yeah. uh, from, I believe the pronunciation is Gillum 
he says, uh, hello from French Canada, just to say thank you for all you do. I watched most episodes since about last two months and appreciate all of the conversations immensely. No, no, hey, thank you, thank you very, awesome. thank you, thank you very us. much for for joining us and uh, vote we, for Pierre. Yeah, we hope you like Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome that yeah. we've got uh, French Canadians up yeah. there, and I'm assuming that you're in Quebec. Um, uh, Golem and so uh, that's kind of cool that uh, you know I, I've really appreciated and I'll make this really quick I really appreciated how many international listeners we've we've gotten over the past couple months like yeah. when you look at circle and you look at the chat and you look at the comments and yeah, our videos it's encouraging there's a lot of people in Canada there's a lot of people in the UK there's there's plenty there's even like people from Sweden and yeah. Ireland and and so Dubai I, yeah. I, you know part of the reason that I think that that Nick a state representative in Virginia has grown in international audiences because a lot of what we talk about is this is an exception today's episode of course but a lot of what we talk about is applicable to a lot of the developed world quite frankly like a lot of the problems that the U.S. is going through politically economically socially you're seeing the same thing play out in Canada we've talked about this before with the disaster that Trudeau has has inflicted on the country so I just wanted to bring that up because it's just kind of cool that we get to see you know, we get to yeah. see non-Americans interacting, you know, in the show in a, in a really cool way. Bandit yeah. 848 says that hell hath no fury like an electorate scorn. <laughs> yeah, I would say you're, you're right. Yeah, there's well, a lot of comments that said that they agree with what I said about how we're now sending unreasonable people. I think that yeah. Thomas Massey said it best when he was like, when I first got elected, I thought that the base was just interested in, and you know, just very, very conservative principled people. And then I started looking at who was getting elected after me, and I realized that they just wanted to elect the craziest son of a... Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny because there's some truth to that. Yeah, well, we got we got some questions that we that we kind of looked at and that uh, people had sent in. So we wanted some of this we've already answered. So we're going to go with um, you know some of these other uh, questions. Like, for instance, one of the questions was, "What does this mean for future speakers?" And this goes into what Thomas Massey was saying: is that the, the next speaker that gets elected is is potentially going to be in a better spot than Matt Gates because the the desire or the will to vacate the chair again and to have Republicans actually stand strong with that is is going to is going to weaken probably probably not not guaranteed but probably um, so it's really all a question of the the speaker that they choose and whether or not the lesson they learn from this is you had better fight or if they thought well there's no way they'll do it again and and we'll learn very very quickly. Uh, on on which position they take. I, I think what it will probably mean for the next speaker coming in, I think they're going to continue with regular order. I think regular order is one that if they try to get rid of that, enough people will, will step up and say, right. no, that's a deal breaker. Um, it'll be interesting what they see with or what they do with respect to potentially shutting down the government. Now I will say Republicans are always averse to shutting down the government in part because it doesn't matter who shuts it down. Republicans get blamed. Every Always. single time the press blames Republicans and, and the, the important part to remember about quote, shutting down the government is it's who said no house bills originate or excuse me, budget bills originate in the house by you know, that's, that's constitutional. So if the house passes a budget and the Senate refuses to do it, the Senate's the one that shut down the government. Now you could argue, well, the house passed a budget. The Senate wasn't going to go for it. Don't care. They did their job. They passed a budget. If the Senate chooses not to do it, then the Senate shut down the government, right? If the House and the Senate pass it and then the president fails to sign it, then the president shut down the government. This is one of the reasons why when we finally gain power again and we have the capacity to do so, we need to start taking an ax to like 
70% of this dang government because too many people are dependent on the government for their, um, for their paychecks. The government is the biggest employer. I like biggest single employer, biggest single employer in, in the nation, which means you got a lot of people that aren't getting their paychecks when the government gets shut down. Well, this is not how it should be. The government shouldn't be the single biggest employer in the country. And if, if we were to at least get rid of a lot of this and privatize most of this, then people's paychecks wouldn't be dependent on who, you know, who shut things down. This wouldn't be such a huge deal. We wouldn't be having our, our, um, debt crisis just get blown out incredibly. I mean, it, it would be much better if most of this was done on the private sector or in the private sector. Yeah. So I think to answer the question, what does it mean for future speakers? Um, we're, time's going to tell on that one. I, I think it, it again, I, I think the two, and this kind of goes to another one is who is likely to gain the speakership next. I think there's two people that are like right off the bat front runners. And that is Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise. And I think between those two, Steve Scalise is probably more likely than Jordan to, um, to get the speakership. And the reason I say that, and, and again, Jim Jordan is someone that I've, I've met before. Steve Scalise is someone that uh, actually came out and, and campaigned with me when I was running for Congress. I, I like, and I respect both of them. Ideologically, I'm, I'm probably closer to Jim Jordan. Um, but Steve Scalise is seen as someone that is, I, I think, an honest broker. Uh, I think Matt Gates actually came right out and said he thought Steve Scalise would make a great speaker. And, um, Whereas, whereas Jim Jordan has been more of kind of like a, on the Freedom Caucus side of things, Steve uh, hasn't. And so I, I think that if you're looking for, if you're looking for a candidate for speaker that a majority of the member of the Republican caucus will vote for, and that people like, you know, Matt Gates or, um, and others won't oppose, mm -hmm. Steve Scalise might be the, the safer bet on that one. Well, that, and he kind of has the ultimate Trump card. It's like, your people shot me. Yeah. So therefore, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The Demo Steve Scalise I mean, was, he was Steve, shot by a Democrat. Steve Scalise was, was Scott was shot by um, somebody that apparently was motivated by Bernie Sanders speeches. But, um, but of course we're not supposed to, you can't blame Bernie Sanders for that. Although you can blame, you any can blame Republican. the gun though. You can blame any Republican if, if anybody does anything mean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I, I think it's probably going to be between Scalise and Jim Jordan. If I had to bet, um, I, I think Scalise is going to get it. I, I don't, I mean, you guys disagree with that? I, I think that Jim Jordan's going to get it. Okay. Over. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, the jury's, the jury's out. It's probably going to be either. I, I'll say this. I, I really like Jim Jordan. I think Jim's a fighter. Mm -hmm. I, I, part I of me doesn't really want Jim Jordan to this. get elected speaker because from my, from my personal experience working in politics, and I've worked in politics my entire life since before I, before I could even legally vote. I have almost never seen, with with but the rarest of exceptions, I've almost never seen a person who's on the conservative side get elected a speaker and then become more conservative. You don't rise up through leadership and then get more conservative over time. Usually the rule is you go, you enter leadership and then you move to the left. And then you end up disappointing your political allies because, and the reason why is your constituency is no longer your constituency. You still have your voters back at home that you have to please, but now you have to manage a hundred people or 200 people or whatever the size of your, depending on the chamber that you're in, you now have to manage all of those caucus members, right? You have to maintain their support. Yeah. And that creates a, a new set of incentive structures that compete against the old incentive structures that led to people becoming conservatives. I have a question. 
is uh, now Jim Jordan's part of the Freedom Caucus. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's on there. Um, is Scalise part of the Freedom Caucus? Uh, I don't think so. Here, let me look real quick. Scalise is definitely to the left of Jordan. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely to the left of Jordan. So this would be the first time the Freedom Caucus actually got their guy then if Jim Jordan won. Uh, Yeah, Jim Jim Jordan is the chair of the Freedom Caucus. I believe. Oh no, no, he's not anymore. He used to be, but he's on it. Um, yeah, but but he's he's on it. I don't believe now. Now, just to give you guys a little backstory, um, the previous speaker McCarthy, when he was trying to become speaker, one of his huge pet peeves was anybody who would join the Freedom Caucus. Like he would work against you and for your opponent. You know, in the primary, if you were. Uh, planning to become part of the Freedom Caucus. So the Freedom Caucus is like his arch enemy or nemesis and uh, within within the party. Obviously, ultimately, it's the Democrats, but within the party, Freedom Caucus, they were at odds with um, McCarthy. So there is a significant, this is a significant shift. If Jim Jordan from the 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 Freedom Caucus ends up becoming the next speaker. That would mean that would mean that the Freedom Caucus got their guy, I, and I, they won. I don't. I don't. Per, uh, so here's the 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 pessimistic side. I don't want your I pessimism, Christian. Well, it's it, then it's not pessimism; it's realism. No, I don't think I reject that. That's okay. You can reject your my reality <laughs> and substitute your own. Um, but I I. I don't think that anything's going to change regardless of who the speaker is. You you can say that, but but you have to look at look at how at odds these two sides were. It, this but is Tina, a, I remember when 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 Paul Ryan was was actually considered like a conservative hero from people. I genuinely remember. I'm old. It's funny. I'm we had somebody in the chat that that's like, you don't remember anything. I remember a lot in politics. I've been involved in okay. politics since before I could vote. He, I remember I, when Paul Ryan was considered a conservative hero by a lot of people. I'm not and talking about your predictions. I'm just talking about, look at it on paper. Look at the significance of the shift on paper. I don't know what it's going to bring. And it, it may or may not do anything significant but the shift on paper is significant you you cannot deny that that ultimately the freedom caucus people that were totally holding out on MacArthur or McCarthy ended up they're putting forward their guy like they're going to get what they want just well, a year here, later here, here's what I'll say as far as the speaker goes <laughs> it, who it, it is it would be a significant shift because it, it would have been considered inconceivable right two to four years ago that a member of the freedom caucus could actually be elected speaker. Yeah. And now one of their members is a significant candidate for it. Exactly. That, Cause the that, freedom caucus was like the redheaded stepchildren. And like they were the most hated amongst all of the establishment. And so now we're looking at possibly having one of them as the speaker. That, that's and well, that's kind of why I, I, again, just from, analysis. I'm not saying I, I, I wouldn't want him to be speaker. I, I actually think Jim Jordan would be a very, very good speaker. To Christian's point, the, the role of the speaker is to manage the Republican caucus or the, it's obviously you're, you're the speaker of the house, not just your caucus, but let's face it. You're, you're trying to get your caucus's agenda through. Um, and you have to play that leadership role. And that usually, again, because members of your caucus don't have to vote with you. It means you usually have to be very, very good at leading, negotiating, occasionally twisting arms. And again, we, we don't like the idea of twisting arms when people are twisting arms in order to get Republicans to do things we don't want them to do. 
we probably would like twisting arms when it comes to getting Republicans to do things that we should we think they should be doing. And, and the question is, is whether or not what sort of a speaker Jim Jordan would be to Christian's point. When, when you have so few, when it is such a slim majority and one person can vacate the chair, it, it creates a, a very, very where, you know, strange paradigm. Um, and, and how to manage the speakership position. It's, it's very, very difficult to do that because your ability to twist arms is, is not necessarily there anymore. Um, so I, I, I just have to say, like, I, I don't know, I don't know what that would mean for, for Jim Jordan in that position. It would be incredibly difficult to do. Oh, it'll be um, hard. I, but I, I think again, when, when I look at the vast majority of the Republican caucus is not freedom caucus members. Now I, I think a lot of people that are not freedom caucus, like Thomas Massey is not a freedom caucus member. And the only reason he's not is because he doesn't like the idea of being tied to certain caucus rules and whatnot. He wants to be able to do what you know he wants to do. He's a very independent-minded thinker, and he's a very liberty-oriented thinker. And and you know sometimes that causes him to run afoul of members of his own caucus. But what I'm saying is is that I I don't know I don't know if you could get a majority of the members to go for a Freedom Caucus member. I I, I would be thrilled if that was the case. Um, simply because I think it would show that the the uh, Republicans in Congress are understanding that they want people to stay true to certain conservative values and they want them to be serious about fighting for them. Um, but I think a lot of people will see Scalise as someone that they they still again. I'm just giving analysis here. I'm not giving my personal opinion. They will see Scalise as someone that is sufficiently conservative. Um, he has been in leadership, and so they will see him as someone that is is capable and understands the process for how things work. And he he won't come off as, I, I think, overtly offensive to the sort of people that would vote to vacate the chair. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so you don't when think you, Trump you, is going to be add, elected speaker? That, when I you, was going to bring that up, yeah. And so when you add up all of those things, I, I think it probably means that that even though ideologically I'm probably a little bit closer to, to Jim Jordan, I, I you know I respect both of them. Um, that that is another question that got brought up is is you know there's you don't have to be a member of Congress to be the Speaker of the House. Um, can can I can I say something sure. to that effect? So I just want you just follow me for a second. Now, if Trump has truly been nominated for this and it goes to a vote, okay, so tell me what you guys think of this. If Trump is is held up for a vote in Congress and they vote against him, here's my question, if he doesn't if he doesn't get voted in, is will all of the people who are like really hardcore MAGA are they going to think that every single person who voted against Trump for the speakership is a never Trumper and therefore shouldn't win their next term? Like, how will this hurt people? I want to know in Congress, will this hurt people to have to I vote against so. Trump? Not at all. I, I, he, and he's not going to get the nomination either. The way that this is going to work is the Republican conference is going to have a closed door meeting where names are going to be thrown around. They're going to do they're going to do some internal ballots within just the GOP conference to decide who their nominee is. It's probably going to be either Scalise or Jordan, most likely at this point. Things could change. But right now, those are the two leading candidates. Trump's name will be thrown out there and there'll be like five or 10 people that will say, I'm going to vote for him. He's not going to get the nomination, though, from from the conference. It's going to be Jordan or Scalise again, unless something changes, which it could. Um, I mean, we didn't think until the day that it happened that McCarthy wasn't going to run again for speaker, even if he ended up being voted out, which he did eventually. Um, so things could change on a fly. But what's 
probably not going to change on the on a fly is a majority of the Republican conference deciding that they're going to pick Donald Trump as their speaker. Right. And so you're not going to know unless unless people tell like the press and stuff like that who gets the nomination, who voted for who and stuff like that. Some people might t- might say and some people might might point out I, you know, fought for Trump to become speaker, but I, A, I don't think that that Trump's going to be the nominee. B, I don't think he's going to get elected by a majority of the house and C quite frankly, I don't think anybody's going to care, including it's Trump's more own of a supporters. I think quite frankly, it's just total. like to be completely blunt and honest, it's total delusional grandstanding. Okay. So can I ask another question along the lines of like, whether this hurts or helps somebody running for Congress, let's say next year. So I think it's m- going to depend entirely on the district. Well, well, let me just, let me just frame this up. Um, McCarthy has already through the NRCC started to indicate who he might be supporting for various congressional races across the country that are like must win races and things like that. And he's already kind of established that. However, if he's not the speaker anymore and he's no longer in charge of the NRCC or or no longer has as much sway, he's not the kingmaker he used to be. What does this mean for People who are trying to run for Congress who aren't currently in Congress, Congress yet, like will, will this help? Will this hurt? How? What oh, you, what's your analysis on that? It's potentially a huge shift. So I'll, I'll give an example very close to home here in the Virginia Seventh Congressional District. Um, we've got two people that I know of. I think there's a couple more that have, have thrown their hat in the rings, but I, I, I'm, I, I don't know them and I, I can't remember their names. But the two that threw their hat in the rings was Cameron Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Um, who I, I know very well and, and again, for what it's worth is, is someone I'm supporting. That's, that's who we're supporting. Yeah. Cause I, I think, I think he's a great candidate. And then, uh, Derek Anderson, who I, who I have no problem with. I've always, I've always, I, you know, I, I, I like Derek. I, I had some problems with the way he ran his last campaign, uh, for Congress. Yeah. There were a few the, shady allegations, but in, I don't know if he made them or if it was just members of the campaign that made them. So I, again, I, I don't, but I don't have a problem with, with Derek personally. I, I think he's, he's a good guy. It's just, I, I think Cameron Hamilton's the guy, but um, one of the things that was interesting was again, McCarthy typically doesn't get my ex, limited experience. I don't claim to have extensive experience is that, you know, Kevin McCarthy was very hesitant to get involved in the primary in the seventh congressional district in the year I was running. I don't think he got involved in the primary uh, last year when Yesley Vega was the candidate. I don't right. think. I don't know that for sure. And and again, the conversation that I had had with Kevin is when we were looking for uh, you know Trump to potentially win because we wanted to. It was it was COVID, right? It was the year of COVID. Everything was delayed. It was making it very very difficult. Uh, primaries were extended, and there was a lot more infighting, and it was just it was just a horrible situation. And so we were trying to say like, okay, is there any way that we can? Because at that point, we'd established ourselves as the front runner, and we were like, man, we want to get to the the general because it's going to be easier to fundraise. And the conversation I had had with Kevin at that point was essentially, who are you going to vote for speaker? And I said, well, sir, I'm not going to commit. He goes, well, you vote how the majority of the caucus votes. Sir, that's another way of committing, and I'm, I'm not going to commit to that either. I would have to see who the speaker candidates are before I could make a decision. Are you going to join the Freedom Caucus? Yes. <laughs> and, and, and the conversation ended fairly abruptly. Mm-hmm. And so he was when, angry. He was so, mad. So when Derek when <laughs> when Derek Anderson came out and and he kind of announced that hey the, the the speaker is backing my candidacy and wants me to run, I was like that's incredible because that is like right out the gate. Like we didn't we don't even have a full list of the people that are going to potentially run. And then boom, like you you already got the speaker's endorsement. And 
that's something that comes with a lot of power when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to influencing organizations that endorse and races. Um, but promises have to be made to get there. And that's look, the concern. Look, I am not going to speculate on whether or not Derek made any promises to Kevin McCarthy. I don't know. I know what my experience is. I'm not going to impugn the honor of somebody else when I don't know what the conversation was. I know what my experience was. And my experience was, is there was some expectation. Um, but I, I'll, I will say this. I remember thinking that's kind of a bad mood for this district. Um, but now that Kevin McCarthy's not the speaker yet, yeah, it, it puts him in a precarious situation because all of a sudden that doesn't necessarily bring the influence with potential donors and organization and other members that it would have. Uh, but you still get the baggage of, of having been endorsed because there's a lot of people in this particular district. So how that's going to be reflected across the country. Sorry, that was a long explanation, but how that's going to be reflected across the country is. D depending on the sort of district that you have and depending on how your base views Kevin McCarthy and views how this whole thing went down, um, all of a sudden, you know, that, that could have already impacted your race one way or another. But there was no doubt that Kevin McCarthy could pick up the phone to major donors and organizations and say, this is my guy, and that would be all they needed to hear in order to funnel money into that campaign. That's not the case anymore. Right. So, so the endorsement came with, with good and bad based off of how your voters thought about McCarthy, but it was almost a universal good when it came to fundraising until now. And so now that that same amount of power is just simply not going to be there. And, and some people will say, well, yeah, but he's established relationships with all these organizations. I'm going to tell you this right now, <laughs> that may be true. And there may be some that have long lasting relationships with you. But one of the things that we always tell new members when they come into the, the house of delegates is look around. This is incredible. You got elected to the house of delegates, the largest continuous legislative body in the Western hemisphere, 400 years of tradition. And five minutes after you leave, no one's going to remember you. Yeah. So just remember that before you get a little bit too cocky. And that's true. Like if you were, if you were the speaker or you were the chair of appropriations and you're not anymore, Sorry, you, you don't have the same influence or access over those things. So yeah, that, that is going to be an impact. I want to say one other thing here about whether or not Trump can be Speaker of the House. Because a lot of people look at it as like, oh, you just got to vote him in. Technically, <laughs> there is a rule, Rule 26A, and, and the Democrats, they, they call it Rule 4 because each caucus kind of set rules and there's House rules. Both of which say the Speaker can't hold the seat while under indictment. And I think there was a there there might have been a, a change that says under indictment with a um, rule thirteen in section ten b reads a member who has been indicted for a felony uh, for which a sentence of two or more years imprisonment may be imposed should resign from any committees and should step aside from any party caucus or conference leadership position. So if you look at what Trump has been indicted for, that would meet the threshold for these rules. What you need to understand about rules is they aren't laws. This isn't the Constitution. This isn't a statute. This isn't... It says should, this, not shall. <laughs> well, and, and it's also something where the House, they can change their rules. Mm -hmm. They have a majority. So if they wanted it bad enough, they could change their internal rules. They could change House rules and and, and Trump could be Speaker. So there, there is a, this would be the equivalent of a, of a speed bump. Right. If he really wanted it and the House caucus really wanted Trump to be the speaker. I, I honestly don't know that it's the best move uh, for either for, for Trump or either the House. I, I don't know. People can speculate on that. I, I, I tend to agree with Christian that I think at this point right now, what it makes is for very interesting television. I think the probability of it actually happening is probably fairly low. To, I mean, to put and Nick knows this, like with the exception of one or two 
like really, t- really technical exceptions. Yeah. The House has never had a speaker who's also not a member of the House. Yeah. When I say really technical exceptions, there's technically one day and I think 1869, the shortest speakership in history, <laughs> yeah. were a member of Congress who had just had his term expired the day before, like his, his term had just ended and he had retired actually, um, was elected by the House to be speaker for the day after his term expired. So he was technically speaker of the House for one day while he also was not a member of the House. But as far as I am aware, that is the only technical exception. And even then it was like just 24 hours earlier, he was a member of Congress. So yeah. it's like with the exception of that, there, there's no case where somebody who has no experience being in a house, isn't a member of Congress mm-hmm. becomes elected speaker. It's just, it's just never happened. Well, and I, it, look, people will say, yeah. And you know, what's also never happened. Vacating the chair. Right. <laughs> so, I have a question about so, vacating the chair. Okay. Um, so tell me this. Um, once someone new is nominated and they vote to elect that person, yeah. do does the house have to vote on new rules or do, do the old rules stand? They, they can't. So in Virginia, I know this better for Virginia than I do DC. I know in Virginia, we, we vote on house rules every time there's, you know, a the, new the speaker. speaker comes in. Right? Now, so essentially, what do you think but, but, are the chances? But, but there's con- but there's constant opportunity to change rules, sure. right? That's not something that has to happen on a set thing. You can, you can change rules, house rules at any time that you have the votes to actually change the rules. So um, what do you think the chances are that they change that, you know, one vote to vacate the chair? What, what do you think the chances of that remaining are? Because I know Mitch McConnell already put out. It, I think it's less than 50, 50. He, he advised personally. all whoever's running to say, Hey, you need to get rid of this rule. I, I so think you think 50, 50, we keep it. No, no. I think it's less than 50, 50. It stays. I, I think now I don't know that it'll go back to the old method, but I think they will require probably a, a little bit higher threshold than one person being able to do it. And, and the question will be is, can they get enough people to be able to change that rule? And I, I don't know. That's the, the big question for that is you, again, in order to get elected speaker, cause that's the rule right now in order to get elected speaker, it depends on how many Republicans within your own caucus are willing to say that rule stays. And if you've got enough to say that rule stays, that rule stays. But I, I don't, I don't know what that, I don't know what that number is right now. So I, I'll go with 50, 50, um, that, that, that rule stays in place as is. Um, I think there's a possibility that it could be adjusted a little bit. I don't think they're going to go back to the old way where it's virtually impossible. Um, but they, they might request a, a slightly higher threshold just so that there's, so the speaker feels like there's some you know room to work without every vote potentially going to to vacate. Um, that that's just my personal opinion. I, I don't know. There there was another question here: was what did Gates offer the Dems to get them on board with him? I don't think he had to offer him anything. I don't think he offered anything. I don't, I don't think he had. To, the, the, well, not only that, but what could he offer? So so understand where the, understand where this is going. Here's what Gates could offer the Democrats with absolute certainty: his vote. That's it. That's what he could offer with absolute. Because if this had failed, Gates would be on exactly zero committees. He he would have he would have absolutely he would have absolutely no power, no influence. Um, he would have had to get several other Republicans. And and the, at the end of the day, the Democrats saw this as valuable for them because they think it represents chaos in the Republican caucus. And so they didn't need to be offered anything to do this. So the other question to go along with that is, how does this? Ha- what did 
Matt Gates have to gain from doing this? As, aside, like assuming, assuming this isn't a hundred percent out of principle, is there anything else he could have stood to gain through this? Oh, like media attention. Yeah, yeah, media media attention, potential fundraising and stuff like that. In fact, he, he got, was fundraising off of it. They held he, it up. Yeah, he was fundraising off of it. It was it was what was funny is. He, yeah, somebody came up and said, this is just a fundraising gimmick by, you know, Matt Gates. Well, and then Matt Gates got up and he goes, he goes, oh, oh, so I'm going to get lectured to on fundraising by the people that are in the pockets of lobbyists and special interests and everything else. He goes, and, and then he started booing. He's like, go ahead and boo. Go ahead and boo. I don't, I mean, it was almost like the Thomas Massey, go ahead and it boo. Was, it was really epic. Yeah. Actually. Your boos mean nothing to me. I've seen what makes you cheer. Um, Matt Gates actually got the better of, I, I think that floor exchange because yeah, they could claim that, okay, Matt Gates is just being a media whore and trying to raise money. But then Matt immediately signed back and he was in, what does that make you when it comes to all these lobbyists yeah. that want more spending in Ukraine? And it was like, Ooh, again, and, and regardless uh, yeah. how you feel about Matt, regardless how you feel about the fundraising off of it, I mean, when Matt makes that point, most Americans are looking at that going, yeah, yeah good question. True. Do, do we want to play that clip of Matt Gates? Like, do you like, have it? I, I, I can pull it up. It's actually like, relatively In my opinion, short. Matt Gates is like, he's not my favorite. He he comes off kind of like a, a narcissistic, arrogant guy, but that doesn't mean he can't be right sometimes. And so, yeah. Do was we, there something you were going to show? Yep, Christian's finding the clip. Yeah, I'm, One second. I'm, I'm oh, okay. pulling it up. Are there other questions we needed to ask first? Let's see. Uh, we have a we do have a question from the MTA chat. Uh, how much of this could or would be fixed with term limits? Okay, um, look, here's the deal. I, I've I have publicly supported term limits. I've publicly signed on for for term limits. Um, here's what I want people to understand about them. They're, they're, the argument against term limits is that if you have term limits, what you're essentially doing is you're telling people that they can't vote for the representative that they want, even if they really like them, and that eventually what's going to happen is the administrative state and the lobbyists and the bureaucrats are essentially going to run the show because anybody that gains any sort of like experience or understanding of the process is term limited out the moment they understand the process. You're not term limiting the bureaucracy. Yeah, and and so that that's and I will say this: I think that is a fair argument. I, I really do. I think that's a fair argument. Here's what I will say. The reason why I still support term limits is because I feel that people are willing to do, I think that people would be willing to fight back against the bureaucracy and perhaps reduce it if they weren't worried about trying to stay there year after year after year. Not to mention the fact that I think the pull um, to move more and more toward you know, the, the statist side of, of the spectrum, not just right or left, but the statist side of the spectrum increases the more time you spend in politics. And I know this because I've been in for eight years. And after a while, you know, look, nobody likes to tell their friends. No, nobody likes to. And, and you start to build relationships with people to get things done. And they come, Hey Nick, can we really get your help on this? And you're like, ah. like I spend a lot of time telling people I really like, no. And it gets, it gets tiring. And that's why we really like you, honey. <laughs> well, no, but it, it gets it gets it gets tiring. It gets frustrating because a lot of times people will come and they'll they'll have a good point and you'll understand what they want to do, but you just you don't agree with the method in which they're trying to solve it, and so you'll try to work with them to find a different way to solve it. And a, after Nick a while, Nick gives the gift of no <laughs> all the time in the general. How but, about 
Mm, no, <laughs> but, it's amazing. I love it. But the reason the reason why I point that out is because again, keep in mind these are still people. I know it's easy to look at all politicians and be like, oh, they're just a bunch of egocentric, narcissistic, you know, jackasses that don't care. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not been my experience. That's not been my experience. I know a lot of people in politics that I res- I well, okay, I know some people in politics I respect and admire. I know a lot of people in politics I genuinely like. I know some people in politics I don't really like. I know some people in politics I don't respect. But the one thing I've noticed about all of them is that they all think that they're trying to do the right thing. There's very, very few, very, very few that I would categorize as they're up there for no other reason than to get rich and because they like the power and they like, there's some, there's some. But I, I'm sorry if that's, that is a, and, and the reason why I point this out is because nothing is easier than to just point at them and say, oh, they're all this. Well, that's easy. Just dismiss it. But if you do that, you're never going to understand the actual motivations behind why are, why they're doing certain things. And that's what you need to understand. So don't just easily dismiss it with whatever explanation makes you feel better. Understand why some of these things take place and how the culture within politics gradually shifts people in a direction that isn't healthy. And that's why, again, I still believe that term limits are a good idea if for nothing else than that reason. Now, here's what I, I will tell you that I think is even better and would really solve the problem more than term limits. Going back to a citizen legislature. In Virginia, we have a citizen legislature, which means you get a very small salary Right, and you are you are in session for sixty days during even years, forty five days during odd years. You have to get all the bills there unless the governor calls a special session. But so you got to get all your work done, and then guess what you got to do? You got to go back to your district and back to your real job because you ain't living off of what they pay you to be a delegate. And that's true of most state legislatures. There's only four state legislatures that are full time, like Congress. It's California, Pennsylvania, and I forget the other two. Um, I can't remember that. I forget the other two, but, and, and then obviously Congress. And so I think if you go into a citizen legislature where you don't look at this as your full time job, you still have other things to do. People will say, well, oh, but how will you develop the, 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 the subject matter expertise to cover down on all these bills? No, you know what you'll do? You'll have fewer bills because you ain't got the time to screw up the country full time, right? You can do a lot less screwing up at the country part time. And so that's, I, I think that's a better thing, but, um, we have the clip ready. Yeah. Okay, let's do the clip from uh, Gates. My colleague says we've passed the strongest border bills in history. Well, guess what? Look at the border right now. We didn't use sufficient leverage in the debt limit or in any other thing to actually get results on the border. The border is a disaster, really something I don't think you're going to be campaigning on that you fix the border. Second, you said you streamlined regulations. What the gentleman from Louisiana doesn't tell you is that all of the regulatory reform he was just bragging about is waivable by the stroke of a pen of someone in the Biden White House. Do you really think you've got anything for that? It's a total joke. And then finally, the welfare to work that the gentleman from Louisiana said we got. The welfare programs that they said that they streamlined with their welfare to work stuff, they're actually going to grow. Because while they did work requirements, they blew out those programs with expanded eligibility. I'm real glad you guys didn't put work requirements on Medicaid. It probably would have resulted in Medicaid expansion. And when it comes to how those raise money, I take no lecture on asking patriotic Americans to weigh in and contribute to this fight from those who would grovel and bend knee for the lobbyists and special interests who own our leadership, who have 
all, boo all you want, who have hollowed out this town and have borrowed against the future of our future generations. I'll be happy to fund my political operation through the work of hardworking Americans, 10 and 20 and $30 at a time. And you all keep showing up at the lobbyist fundraisers and see how that goes for you. I reserve. Oh, I love that so much. I, I think my opinion of Matt Gates just completely shifted. <laughs> that was really cool. Oh, that, that was, and when, he's and not, he's not wrong and, and, on this. And that's the point. You, you don't have to, you don't have to like Matt Gates, right. To look at what Matt Gates just said there and be like, yeah, yeah, he, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. And then when they booed, you know, and, and again, this is part of the, this is part of the culture of, well, you, you know, you want to get along with your colleagues. You reach a threshold, you reach a point where you feel like the train has gone off the tracks enough to where you, you stop caring about that. And, and that's where some of these guys are at. And again, if, if people want to trash them and if, and, and I, I'm not, let me make this clear. I'm not saying that everybody that disagrees with this is a rhino or a horrible, like that is not at all what I'm saying. I get why some people would have opposed this. What I'm more frustrated at is the argument that like Newt Gingrich made. Well, if you did this, you're a traitor. If you did this, you did. like Newt, spare me, spare me. We've heard it all before. And that's the problem is that there's too much of this one, one-sided conversation where it's, it's telling the, again, telling a significant portion of the base well, if you just give us all the power, we'll do it. And then when you don't, you lose trust. And then they want to act like, well, they'll always vote for us regardless because the other, the alternative would be so much worse. Well, again, if, if you're the surrender caucus, we're, we're not interested. We'd, we'd rather, we'd rather go down fighting and that's what needs to be. Because if you're going to go down fighting, there's a chance you might win. Yep. But if you're just going to slowly surrender over time, you're losing no matter what you do. The difference is, is you become complicit in it. Yep. And that's what they, there's no, I'm sorry that this is the one message that I hope the new speaker and look, if it's Scalise, I wish him all the best. If it's Jim Jordan, I wish him all the best. If it's someone else, wish him all the best. But I hope the one lesson that will be learned from this is that I'm sorry, conservatives, liberty minded people, you know, grassroots Republicans, they want someone that's going to fight. They'll forgive you. They'll forgive you if you have some scars. They'll forgive you if you lose some battles. They will not forgive you if you just roll over and surrender. They won't. Not anymore. It's done. It's done. And that needs to be understood. All righty. Well, I think we've gone, I think we've gone through, through most of the questions from this, everything else. So here's what we're going to do now. And I think we've already kind of given away some of it. I don't, I don't think anybody that's watching this point, my, my goal, my master plan here was that we were just going to provide objective, you know, undispassionate analysis. You guys and then know by, I cannot and then by be objective. the time we got to the end, it was going to be like, oh, the great reveal of my whether or not we think this is a good time away. or a bad time. So, all right, we're going to go around the table now. And we're going to ask the question, do you think this is a, do you think this was a good move? or a bad move, taking into account all of the considerations, taking into account of good arguments like Thomas Massey, who voted against this. And I'm going to tell you right now, anybody that calls Thomas Massey a rhino, just unfriend me, right? Like I don't, I don't even know what to tell you. That man has fought when nobody else would on stuff. And, and even when he does something that I, I might not agree with him tactically, it, it's never because he is, he is, you know, violating core principles. All right. So look, there's some, there's some good people that have opposed this. I think there's some good people that have supported it. That's where I'm coming from on this, but let's go around the table. Christian, you're up first. 
Oh man, this is difficult because I I did say earlier that that I would have voted to Alice McCarthy, and I would have if I, if I was in Congress representing Culpepper, I would have voted to Alice McCarthy. But um, and I also would not have voted to make him speaker in January. Um, actually, I probably would have on the last ballot because he did offer a lot of concessions, many of which he later broke, which is why I would have voted to to remove him. But the pessimist in me actually sympathetically agrees with Massey who did not vote to remove McCarthy and did not obstruct him becoming speaker back in January because Massey and I agree philosophically on this. Like, like I get where Massey's coming from in the, in the sense that he's been through this rodeo before, yeah. right? The freedom caucus ousted Boehner and they got, they got Paul Ryan. Oh, what a great improvement. Like most likely McCarthy's successor is going to have the same problems that McCarthy had and is probably going to have the same sort of results that McCarthy had because quite frankly the system the problem is not who the speaker of the house is the problem is the system itself is broken right now and it's broken at every single level of of government and you're not going to solve that problem we've talked about this before right no politicians coming to save you and quite frankly, I don't think that we're going to be able to vote our way out of some of these problems. So while I would have voted to remove McCarthy because he did break some of his promises and that would have been justification for me to, to remove him from office, I'm not necessarily optimistic that the act of removing him from office is going to somehow make the situation better or fix some of the, the existential crises that are barreling towards us at $500 billion every 15 days right now. That is not going to get fixed. We're we're heading towards a sovereign debt crisis, and quite frankly, I think that we're we're probably past the point of no return, and it's probably right, too gonna, late to avoid. I'm going to stop you before that you. That was I'm not a, a very concise. Yeah, I'm going to stop you before you develop, <laughs> dull, you know, delve into like the fall of the Roman Empire. So, Pretty soon. Yeah, so the, the crisis of the third century is imminent. <laughs> buy gold. <laughs> buy freedom gold. Buy freedom gold. <laughs> All right. So Christian Christian says that he is a he is a um, he votes with the eight to vacate the chair. All right, Christian votes yes. Okay. Tina. Um, honestly, I was really, really surprised by this, but part of it was that I wasn't paying that close of attention to what McCarthy was doing. And so I feel like it was a good idea. And the reason I feel like it was a good idea is because just like me, and and look, I, I pay really close attention to politics and I pay close attention to this. I wasn't paying close attention <laughs> to what McCarthy was doing until they voted to vacate the chair. And I had to ask why they do that. And so it put a big old fat magnifying glass back on exactly what was going on. And so, um, do I, I mean, yes, I think, I think it was good can I see a, a, a place for people having a different strategy? Absolutely. I don't think less of the people that didn't vote for that. I think they might've had a different strategy. Um, so I don't just assume that they're all rhinos for not voting for that. But this idea that the ones who voted for it were rhinos is insane. They, these, these are the conservative people that are trying to hold his feet to the fire. And, um, and I think that it does kind of send a message to the next people coming in, whoever that may be, that, look, we're going to hold you accountable. Like no more, no more holding bills, hostage, business as usual stuff. Um, don't just, don't just placate us and, and pretend that you did something for, you know, for your talking points, for your little newsletters or your fundraising emails, you need to do something substantive. And I think that, um, this kind of sent that message. I think it was a, it was a, it was a good move. Now I don't really care for Matt Ge Gates, but 
I think, you know, okay, he, he made the right move. Hamilton. I think at the end of the day, this was a good move long term. I think that it shows that some Republicans within the party are willing to take a stand. Um, I think that when you, the, the base needed to see some backbone in D.C., and I think that's what this was. Okay, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit, too, with Tina that I've been so focused on what's going on in Virginia right now that I wasn't paying as, as close attention as I probably should have been on, on so what was going on in Congress. That and I and I like to be happy and paying close attention to Congress is not conducive to that. Um, I, I will say this: I'm gonna I'm gonna back this up just a little bit. I want to try to put myself in the position of having to do this before I knew what the outcome was, and and to understand that um, you have to realize that Gates probably had to go around and convince a certain number of people um, to take this vote, and what it would have meant if McCarthy won was essentially um, they'd be done. They would be done. They would each get primary challengers. They may still get primary challengers. In fact, they probably will. Um, all of their, you know, reelection campaigns just got a lot more expensive, probably. Um, if they had lost this, they, they most likely would have been removed from any committee of, of any significance. Their bills would have been dead on arrival. Um, I, I don't care what bills they carried, they would have been dead. From the position of someone representing constituents that is trying to get legislation done or budget amendments passed that are very important to your district, what this meant was is that they would get none of it. Right. So that's that's the practical reality. I, I want people to have some appreciation that this wasn't just about, hey, take a stand and fight. No, there it's was, an incredible risk there was going to be real consequences, like real world consequences for this, for their districts, for doing this. Um, and, and I think Massey makes a very good point with respect to just because, you know, sometimes when, when you've got a speaker that, you know, there's a lot of fighting and, and a lot of concessions and, and McCarthy made some very, very good concessions. Some of the best concessions that I've ever seen. It's one of the reasons why I, uh, when a lot of people were trashing the Republican member, Chip Roy and the Republican members that were holding up, but I was like, no, they, they are, they are doing, <laughs> they're doing God's work right now to get these concessions, which are a long time in coming. Um, and, and, you know, Massey is legitimately worried that who we get next is going to come in there and they will have learned a very, very different lesson from this. The lesson they will learn is we need to change all this back. We need to get these rules in. And, and, and again, I, I understand why he's concerned about it. Um, having said all that, I'm voting, I'm voting yes. I'm voting to vacate. And uh, the reason why is because I think what McCarthy thought was that, and, and, and conceding that it is an incredibly difficult job, especially with split government. We don't have the Senate. We don't have the presidency. You can't get things done. The problem is, is that we've heard it all before. And I think what McCarthy thought was, is he could give a, he could give the concessions he needed to give to get the speakership. And once he had it, if he had to kind of, you know, shy away from some of those commitments, he'd get away with it because, Hey, this is just the way, this is just the way it's done. And I, and I think he actually made a very, very reasonable calculation on that. And I'm, and I'm glad he didn't get away with it is what this comes down to. And this is, this is not about, I mean, people could look at this as, as like you have some personal animosity toward Kevin McCarthy. There's some things I didn't agree with on Kevin McCarthy at the end of the day in 2020, when we were all trying to win, I remember I was at an event with Kevin and Kevin gave, I thought a, a very, very, you know, 
passionate and, and, and well thought out, um, you know, plea uh, on behalf of the president, on behalf of a, a Republican Congress. But ultimately, I'm just, I'm tired. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of constantly, I'm, I'm tired of the conservative base constantly being told that we can't get the things that we want because if we do, we won't be able to hold power. And the point is, is what's the point of holding power? What's the point of holding power if you can't deliver on the promises that you made? And, and I, don't, I don't believe in holding power to deliver on promises like bringing home the bacon. I, I mean, doing the things that we all claim we believe will make the country better. Doing the sort of things where we're like, no, we're going to reduce taxes, not just because it's a talking point. We're going to reduce taxes because it means that people that are working incredibly hard get to keep more of what they earned because it doesn't belong to the government. And we're going to reduce regulations because right now there are people that aren't starting businesses or expanding businesses because it's too hard to break into the marketplace. And because a lot of those regulations were written by companies that don't want to compete with new young entrepreneurs and innovators. It means that we're going to protect Second Amendment rights. It means that we're going to we're going to reject this idea that we should be running the country from D.C. I don't think these are ideas that we have to run away from once we're in power. I think there's sort of ideas that will guarantee that people actually put us into positions of public trust. But if every time we're there, we get told, no, 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 it's 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 Nick. The polling shows. Nick, the press isn't with us. I hear this so much time. Nick, we're just we're just we didn't get out ahead of the messaging. Why? Because the, the media doesn't like it. I got news for you. If you're waiting for the media to step up and be like, wow, the Republicans have just done a really great job. That's not happening unless you've betrayed every single one of your values. There's only one type of Republican the mainstream media likes, and it's a dead one that they hated 12 years ago. Yep. That's it. You know what Republicans they like? John McCain, Mitt Romney. They didn't like him when they were running for president. They were, all, they were all horrible <laughs> racist. And now, yeah. and now they're supposed to be the the... The example for what Republicans are supposed to be. So look, what do you? Say I don't. I don't say this lightly. I don't say this lightly because I do think that Massey makes a good point, and I do think that you, you need. It is difficult to operate when there is chaos within leadership, and and there are times where you have to you have to understand that there is a bigger mission here. But in this case, the bigger mission is making sure that Republican leadership from the top on down is on notice that what we expect is someone to fight. And so I vote yes. Uh, question, what do you say to people that say, you know, this just shows Republican incompetence and the media is going to bang away at that drum and we're going to lose a whole bunch of seats over this? Do you think we lose a bunch of seats over this? No. If, Re if Republican competence can only be represented in capitulating to the left, then I don't want it. I'll take anything but it. Because what that essentially means at that point is that competence is doing what the Democrats want. Because, oh, well, because then everything went through the way we expected. Oh, then, then we don't have any trouble with respect to the government shutting down. No, we, sh we should be competent in advocating for and passing the legislation we think is going to help people. So, no, I, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to result in, that is, I will tell you this, here's, <laughs> I'm going to make a prediction right now, and this is always dangerous in politics. I'm going to make a prediction right now, and that is all of the talking heads all of the people in DC and all the, you know, all these people that are the, the experts on all of this that are predicting chaos and problems. And, and it, I think this is going to be a nothing burger in a couple of months. 
I, I really do. I think people are going to find out that they're, they're nowhere. And, and look, this is a good lesson for all of us in politics. You're just nowhere near as important as you actually think you are. And this is a year before their election. So, I mean, the election cycle works in in months, not years. And so if something happened last year, uh, as long as you can recover with it before the next election, you're you're fine. Uh, the, the amount of stuff I see some of these people getting away with and getting reelected, it, it makes me start to think that, I mean, like some of these people, as long as they lie to you enough, you'll just reelect them. Because, you know, half the time we end up just being so gullible and we believe whatever they're going to tell us, you know, in their little mailer in a few months and we completely forget what they did before. I mean, I watched it happen in my race when I ran against Hanger and he was acting as though he wasn't totally, you know, sending money to, you know, abortion clinics and everything else. So it's, it's crazy how people will just go, oh. Oh, I have to think this way. Okay, I think this way, and so I mean, part of that is kind of a call on on everyone to go. Let's not fall asleep at the wheel here. Thomas Sowell said it best when he said, "The fact that so many politicians are such shameless liars is not just an indictment on them; it's also one against us. Yeah. Because when the people demand the impossible, only liars can satisfy." Yeah. Well, look, I want to thank everybody. I know we got a, a, a super chat comment from Strong Gamer. He goes, McCarthy deserved it. I don't care about party. I simply wanted the shutdown to last longer out of spite towards this corrupt federal government. Um, you know, I, I think I think that's being I think that's an opinion that's being shared by more and more people. And, and look, I, I, I live in Virginia. We have a lot of people within the defense industry and whatnot that, you know, they, they get affected by government shutdowns. And I and I certainly I certainly understand that. Like, I don't want to make light of you know, somebody's individual plight when they're trying to pay rent. Like I, I get it. But the problem is, is that it shouldn't be getting to this point. It should have never gotten to this point. And, and the problem is, is that they will always, once, once politicians let it get to a point of, of, of such decay and, and where, where it does become so problematic, that's where they always run out to find the most sympathetic victims yep. in order to justify not actually getting their crap together. And, I, and I'm just done with that. I'm absolutely done with that. And, and they need to know we're not going to let them get away with it anymore. So look, this was a tough decision. People are going to be adversely affected. I don't want to make light of any of that. I'm also not, I'm also, even though I've made my opinion clear on this, I'm not going to go out and, and, and say that anybody that disagrees with me is a rhino or an idiot right. or a traitor. I'm not going to do any of that. I, I understand why, why people might come to different conclusions. Um, but ultimately, you know, look, we've, we've made our case for why we think it was, it was probably the right move in the long run. Um, and hopefully we're right. There's still a chance we could be wrong. Right. But, but hopefully we're right. Uh, bottom line is, is that I know we don't, we, we are not a news cycle driven uh, podcast. And we're that way on purpose. But when something happens, that's so unique that has never happened before in, in, in us political history, we thought it would be an interesting time to sit down there again. I, I hope for the first part of this, where we were just talking about the different viewpoints. I hope you think we did a good job of accurately representing the different viewpoints on this particular topic and providing some predictions on, on what's going to happen and maybe the immediate future and, and a, a couple of years from now as a result of this. So once again, Again, thank you very much for your participation. Thank you so much for your super chats. Those of you that have donated, 
Once again, remember, we got that deal on Good Ranchers. It is a great way to enjoy a very, very quality product from a great company. And when you order using our promo code, it helps us a lot. I can't emphasize that enough. It helps promo us a lot. Promo code Nick. Promo code Nick. Promo code Nick. Thank you very much. Also, consider joining our community chat. The link will be in the description. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next episode.